Hey guys, if you're on Spotify right now, please hit that follow button so that you don't miss any future episodes. And I'd love to see you leave a five-star review as well. Thank you. A solution for Afghanistan does not exist in America. It does not exist in Europe. The solution exists within Afghanistan. Afghanistan's been at war for the last 50 years. And if, if you go all the way back to, you know, Alexander the Great, and then you go to Genghis Khan, and then you go to the Brits, and then the Russians, and then the Americans, everyone's been to that country. And everybody's tried to invade that country. But, but they've all failed. Today, something could be the right thing to do for one party, and tomorrow that would be the wrong thing for the same party. Yeah, just because it doesn't fit their agenda. Oh, it's all. It's like you were saying. It's all deal making. And I have a lot more questions on this, but we yeah. got to get there because we got to <laughs> work in like how you ended up in this yeah. cyclone to where you're still doing unbelievable work despite what happened to you. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I, I try to catch the vibe and and see when there's some signs that line up like, oh yeah, I should definitely do this. And so I had two fans hit me up who I don't think knew each other, like back to back, like, oh, you got to talk to this guy, Safi Ruff. I'm like, okay. I Googled the story real quick. I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Like, I'll do that. And then Mark Gagnon, who's got a fucking phenomenal show on YouTube that I watch, I think he put out the episode like the next day with you. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, let's get this guy's story out there. Like, that was a good start right there. And, and I'd love to see you do a lot more podcasts to, to yeah. talk about this. Because, by the way, on that bill you were just talking about with me, this is the kind of thing that can help push that forward, can yeah. put – not just one human face on it, but a lot mm-hmm. more than that, too. But to see somebody like you who is a veteran of this country, who has been a hero for your your people over there and our people who we left behind, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Hey, guys, there is another 35 minutes of content that Safi and I recorded on Afghanistan, some of its greater history and the Middle East that is going to appear over on Patreon only. Essentially, if I included it in this episode, it would have been way too long for one episode on YouTube, and this was not long enough of a total recording to split it up into two episodes. So we've put it over on Patreon, and you can join our Patreon and help support this show by hitting the link in my description. And if you are on Spotify or Apple, you can hit the link in the show description as well as in the episode description. But... I'm just putting two and two together in my head. You were born in 94, I think, right? Yes. So, and you were born in a refugee camp in Pakistan? Yes. So, this is during what I would view as, I assume, the height of the Civil War. Is that, did your parents flee once the war started, or had they been in Pakistan for a while? So, my my parents fled d- uh, during the Russian invasion. Because, mm. once again, we didn't live in the city. The city was fine. Uh, during the Russian invasion. When you say the city, like Kabul, Kabul city. Kandahar. Uh, Kabul city, Kandahar city, Mazar-e-Sharif, like those cities, the big cities were fine. It was the villages. And again, same thing in the American invasion. The cities were fine. It was the villages and the towns that were um, far away and the only the poor people and the farmers lived there. Those were the cities that were repeatedly attacked and bombed and Mm. all of that by russians and then you know we didn't 
change that course either. We continue to do that same action in Afghanistan. Um, So, sorry, I... You were saying that they left when the Russians invaded. Yes. So they, because my parents were living in uh, the villages and they, uh, the Russians basically were bombarding those villages. My, my, my dad actually was arrested and he was in jail for three months in uh, uh, Russian occupied Afghanistan. And why once, did they arrest him? Just because they came to the village and arrested anyone there? Or? So one day he was, uh, my dad is a veterinarian. And mm. one day he was standing at the bus stop with a bag full of medicine. Um, and they arrested him for that. They arrested th- them for that because that medicine was for the the, the freedom fighters, uh, the Mujahideen. The medicine he was delivering was uh, meant for people that were injured. In the war. Oh, so I was putting two and two together. I was thinking he had like animal medicine, but he had no, he had human. Okay. Yeah, got it for people. And the Russians basically were like, "Oh, he's giving this to the mujahideen because they have injured, and he's on their side." So they arrested him for three months, and then he escaped from prison. And as soon as he escaped, he um, he how left. did he escape from prison? Uh, well, it was somebody in the prison was sympathetic to him and knew him and then one day he just left the door open to his cell and looked he looked the other way and let him walk away um so he was able to do that and then right after that they all left for pakistan and they were ever since then they lived in refugee camp and that's where i was born how far were they from pakistan where they were I mean, again, by drive, it's not that far. It's uh, by drive, it was about fourteen, fifteen hours. That's but they have far. to. Yeah. That's not like an hour or something. Yeah, but if you do it by a car, it's still fine. But they had to walk that whole way, and so it took them many days. And so your dad and your mom went. Did they already have kids at that time? Yes. Um, so I have uh, ten siblings. I think at the time they had about five kids. Jesus, yeah, ten so, siblings. Yeah, it's a crowded house, man. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, man. You, sometimes you you lose a child and you don't even know. Well, that's that's a wild concept <laughs> to me. I don't know anything about that, but I mean, so you, they already take five. Yeah, four. I'm just picturing five kids going 14, 15 hours in the middle of a war zone to another country for a refugee camp. That's oh, insane. they didn't drive. They walked for weeks. They, they walked. They walked for weeks. You couldn't drive on the roads because the Russians were targeting the roads. I didn't know if they got like, yeah, what's it called, no. like smuggled out of there or something. Well, the smuggling was the the route. Smuggling route was not uh, drivable because it was through the mountains. So you had to go mm. over the mountains. You have to walk. Um, so they walked for weeks uh, to go over the mountains, and uh, basically went to Pakistan, and then they lived there. Um, and then I was born in ninety five, and. I lived there until 2010. And wow. So I was actually in, in Pakistan, and I was going back and forth between Pakistan and Afghanistan when the invasion happened. Right. So b- before we get there, though, with, with your backstory and growing up, Pakistan to start with, it's such an interesting topic to bring up like especially if you talk with intelligence people yeah. about like pakistan they're like uh, oh boy it's like highest bidder goes but 
you know, they're a neighboring country. It's kind of like they've had a front row seat to witnessing all this craziness, like right next door for the last God knows how many years. How much, like, you know, how many refugee camps do they have? How helpful are they? How much is it just like they feel forced to do it to put on a good face for other countries that they care about what they think about them? Like, what's the setup there? Or are they genuinely, at least the people, the parts of the government who are running the various camps, are they genuinely sympathetic to, you know, in this case, the fighting that was going on in Afghanistan? So it, it's a very complicated relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan doesn't help Afghanistan because from the goodness of their heart. <laughs> they help them because there's, there's always an incentive for them. Mm. Um, the, the, the very first time when they allowed Afghan refugees to settle in Pakistan was because uh, the U.S. paid them billions of dollars. Uh, we, um, we not only paid them billions of dollars, but we went there, trained their military, give them helicopters, give them planes, give them everything they asked for. So this, I take it, this is like when the Russian thing was going on. Yes. So second thing, you know why Russia invaded Afghanistan? In fact, Russia didn't invade Afghanistan. Russia was invited into Afghanistan by the government that was in place at the time because Pakistan was supporting the opposition to that government and the government could not, uh, could not uh, protect itself. So they asked the mm. Russians to come and protect that government. Well, Russia came, but Russia's main target was not Afghanistan. Russia's main target was Pakistan. Mm. And why was it Pakistan? Because all the ports that Russia have, they are, uh, they can't use them because they're all frozen. It's so called. They are all frozen. So what does Pakistan have? They have a port that is not frozen, and mm. they can use it use it throughout the year. It's in Karachi. It's called Gawadar. What's and it called? Gawadar. How do you spell that? G A W A D A R. Okay. So that's that was basically like a leverage tool in the middle where now someone had to play ball with them so yeah so russia wanted to make their way to pakistan to invade pakistan and get access to that port to use that port for their international uh basically trade well they were forced to support the the up the the freedom fighters in afghanistan because if they defeat Russia in Afghanistan, then Pakistan is safe. Mm. So Pakistan has a permanent enemy, India. So Pakistan has to. Pakistan is sort of in a really, really bad place. Where on one side they have Afghanistan, which Afghanistan is never happy with anybody, <laughs> and then on the other side they have India, and they have they've been in three wars so far. They got in a war in nineteen forty eight. 1965, 1971, and they also had a skirmish on the border in 2001 in Cargill. This is a part of this is another part of history, that especially in the Western world, very few people know about. But yeah. this goes way back, as you said. Yeah, and I think one of the important part of the thing to understand here is that America is barely 250 years old, and these parts of the world, they are five, six thousand years old. Yes. 
So, and, and they don't forget their history. It's an oral history that's been um, transferred from generations to generations. And they remember that. And they remember who their enemies are. So, and they remember where the, who drew the borders and where the borders are supposed to be. Mm. So, the, a lot of the clashes come because the border that is drawn, drawn is not where it's supposed to be. Because somebody at some point had more power than that other country, and they were like, "Well, I'm I'm taking the border, like, and building it over here now." Because and am I way off base if I say that Britain and that part played a huge role in that? Yes. Okay. So, almost half of Pakistan actually belongs to Afghanistan, and if Afghanistan is powerful and stable, he, they're going to come back and be like, give me my territory back. Wait, really? I yeah. didn't know that. So what happened when, because uh, Pakistan is a very new country. Pakistan was uh, uh, established in 1947, August 14, 1947. So at that, so back in 1901, um there was uh, in the 1900s, 1901, sometime over there. So the Brits and Afghans used to fight all the freaking time. And the last time, the Brits sent 200 uh, soldiers to Afghanistan to basically fight the, the, the people of Afghanistan at the time. And only one person survived. Mm. One British soldier survived. And he was also injured uh in one foot and he made it back and basically was like can't fight these people yeah yeah, (laughs) we we can't fight these people so we must make um we must sign a agreement with them so that's when they signed this agreement called the durand line um uh, it's d-u-r-a-n-d uh the durand line uh agreement uh, between the Brits and Afghanistan. Um, and they basically said, this is going to be the line. We're not going to come uh, to the other side of this line, and you you are not going to come to this side of the, the line. However, there was a lot of territory, and, and they, they did this agreement. They're like, we're going to do the agreement for 100 years. This agreement was supposed to last for 100 years. They're like, we're going to do an agreement for 100 years. And after 100 years, you guys can have all this territory back. Uh, Which is, you know, on, there is on the, um, the, the province that's called Pakhtunkhwa all the way until Atak. That's the territory of Afghanistan. And then on the Quetta side, you have it, you have a lot of territory on that side as well. I'll put this map in the corner of the screen, and there were probably a few things you said a few yeah. minutes ago that I'll put something in the corner of the screen then too as well just so people can follow along. So all of that belongs to Afghanistan, and the time of the agreement has actually uh, ran out. So in Pakistan, as it is, is a f- tiny freaking country, and they have no strategic depth. So... It, it comes, and, and now talking about militarily, talking about strategic depth, what does that mean? Mm. India is a big, powerful, strong country. Yeah, India is large, and they have a lot of strategic depth. So on the Punjab side, 
on the su- southern Pakistan, uh, when India attacks Pakistan, what they can do is they can retreat uh, in, into northern Af- Pakistan and all the way into Afghanistan. They retreat and then they regroup and then they go back and attack. And basically, that's how they usually fight their wars because they can't, on the battlefield, they can't fight India. So they need to have that strategic depth. They need to have a country in Af- they need to have a government in Afghanistan that, if needed, can be used to the benefit of Pakistan. It's basically like they they view Afghanistan as like the redheaded stepchild, but they kind of need them around to smile for the pictures. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, any day if there is like a stable, powerful government in Afghanistan, they're gonna go to Pakistan and be like, you know, hand it back over. Mm. Give me that uh, territory back. Uh, but that goes way, way back in, in history and, you know, having some history lessons to to understand why that all happens. But coming back to Pakistan, they get billions of dollars of aid every time. Every refugee that they receive, they receive like hundreds of thousands of dollars for them. And not only that, but, you know, it's more buying power. Like mm. somebody who goes there, if they have money, they will rent a place, they will buy food, they will invest in that economy. Some of the biggest investors in Pakistan are actually Afghans. They have huge uh, businesses there. And now we come to 2001. So Pakistan um, became a nuclear power in 1998. And when they became a nuclear power, the U.S. put a lot of sanctions on them because they were like, you can't do that. Mm. You just, you can't develop a nuclear weapon. And they did. So the U.S. was like, I'm putting all these sanctions on you. And basically Pakistan started their economy and everything started to cripple. And in 2001, the U.S. was basically like, are you going to support me against the war war against terrorism in Afghanistan, I will, I, will, I will lift all the sanctions, I'll give you money, and all the trade that's going to flow from, you know, the, the, the port that I sp- talked about before in Karachi, everything that we need in Afghanistan, all of the supplies are going to come to this port, they're going to be landed in this port, and they're going to be trucked into Afghanistan. So you will benefit not only that we will, we will lift all the sanctions, but all of the logistics, all of the food, all of the military equipment, everything that we're going to use, it's going to go through your country and you're going to like benefit massively from that. So pretty much when those planes hit those buildings, that was like winning the lottery for Pakistan. Exactly. And not only that, but, you know, President Bush at the time also called Parvez Musharraf was the actually he was an army dictator at the time he was hmm. he was an army general who actually uh, did a, a coup d'etat that sounds sounds like a nice yeah. guy yeah. yeah so he did a coup d'etat uh, uh, against um, president nawaz sharif and he was the army he, basically president bush called him he's like we'll do all these things for you stand with us but he also told him that if you don't stand with us I'll send you back to Stone Age. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to come in there and we're going to kill all you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that, and, and that's why Pakistan 
accept refugees. Pakistan supports Americans. And it's it's an odd country for doing that, actually, because most of the countries in that region um, are not pro-America. You don't like, say. It, 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 Wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like America doesn't have that much leverage in, in those countries. And Pakistan, in the middle of all these countries that actually are pro-Russia, they are more pro-Russia than they are pro-US. Pakistan is an odd uh, ball in there, and they actually are kind of an ally to the US when it's convenient for them. Right. But also they backstab us every chance they get. Every opportunity. They they have continued to support terrorism from day one. Because terrorists for them are... Uh, they, they perform two um, functions for them. One, they fight in Afghanistan, keep Afghanistan unstable. Second they fight against India. Uh, mm. Those terrorists are basically um, free disposable fighters for Pakistan to use however they please. They use it in India, they use it in Kashmir, they use it on the border areas all across India. Um, they carry out attacks in India all the time. And, you know, the Mumbai attacks on, yes. the, on the hotel, they were all planned and um, planned in Pakistan by by those terrorists. Well, it gives them it gives the government perfect deniability. It's like, well, they're not ours officially, exactly. you know, but we're not going to throw them in jail. Yeah, exactly. So, what are you really doing? Yeah. So, and all of those people, like I, I lived in Pakistan for seventeen years. All those people roam free in Pakistan. Yeah, there is no. They roam free with weapons and trainings, and they have training camps and all that, and nobody. You know, bats and I. Well, what was it like for you growing up there? Because you're you're from Afghanistan, but you were born in this refugee camp mm -hmm. in Pakistan. And and did you guys did you move out of the refugee camp and just live within the country? Or we did from time to time. But you know the the practices that the people of Pakistan were doing at the time were predatory. So what would happen is they would be like, okay, this house for rent you know, six hundred dollars mm. uh and we do an agreement for three months and you're like, Oh, great. Okay, I'll move into this house. Three month agreement, six hundred dollar a month. Three months were up, they would come knock on the door, the rent tomorrow is gonna be twelve hundred dollars mm. or get the fuck out. And then they would come back a month later, they'd be like, Oh, now it's twenty four hundred. So it was uh, predatory practices that they did. In addition to that, being a refugee in Pakistan was like being a second-class citizen. Even mm -hmm. worse, you were persecuted. Police bothered you all the time. They harassed you, called you names. Uh, little children, like in school, you, you couldn't go to Pakistani schools because you would be bullied, you would be persecuted. And for for most of, most of the schools, you were actually not allowed to go to those schools. If, so where did you go? Um, I actually pretended to not be a refugee. Mm. So most of the times that was the um, easy way out for me is um, to 
just pretend that I'm not a refugee. And that's actually one of the reasons that I know multiple languages and I became so good at all those languages that people people couldn't tell where I was from. So every time I came across somebody, I spoke uh, so fluently the language that they were, uh, mm. that was their mother tongue, that they just couldn't tell that I was a refugee. So, and, you know, in, in retro, I was like a chameleon. I fit in everywhere. Because you were born there, too. I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, your parents, for example. Here's a good question. Over in Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's several different languages. Mm-hmm. And it depends where you are. So when your parents came to Pakistan, what was the language of where they were in Pakistan? And did they speak it at all? No. So uh, my mom is actually Tajik. She speaks Dari. My dad is Pashtun. He speaks Pashtu. And where we were living, uh, the predominant language is Urdu. Um, So they spoke that both together. They both spoke. Oh, where you were living in Pakistan, you're saying it's Urdu. So wait, I'm sorry. Did your parents speak a common language? (laughs) Like, So my mom also, but... In Afghanistan, the way it works, like if you if you if you are like your mother tongue is one language or the other, you sp- speak both languages basically. Okay, All but right, I but uh, ethnically you are one or the other, but yeah. you can most of the times you can speak both languages. So they they spoke both languages, uh, and and that's why I speak both languages, and then learn, you know, um, Urdu in Pakistan and also Punjabi in Pakistan, and. How you know. close are these languages? Like if, if we were – I don't know if you can make any kind of comparison like this. But if people compare like Spanish and Italian mm-hmm. or like French and French and Italian or something yeah. like that, like what – how far apart are they? Um, so Punjabi and Urdu is basically like <clears> – they, they are different. They are like <clears throat> uh, Spanish and more like Italian. They're – you can understand if – you speak one of the languages mm. and it's super easy to learn the other, but they're still different. Uh, Hindi and Urdu are basically like either s- speaking Scottish English or, you know, American mm. English. Yeah. <clears throat> um, similarly, in Pashto, they have very different uh, accents. They have many different accents and from depending on which region you're from. Uh, and that's why people usually can tell where you're from because... You have that accent. For you, how well did you take on the... Because you're learning all these as a very little kid, which helps. Mm-hmm. How well are you taking on the, say, native accent of each of the languages you're learning? Yeah, so I spoke multiple accents. I spe- I sp- I, you know, I spoke about five different accents of Pashto. And depending on who I was speaking to, I would just switch Whoa. to that uh, language. And it became very useful later in life because... F- for what I was doing, and we'll get to that later. But it became very useful. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, it became very useful to actually identifying people from where they were from. How young were you when you first realized that your background and environment of upbringing was different in the sense that just like some of the basic things you were describing, like you're not welcome in certain areas or there's there are different people in the world who exist. I mean, I, I remember when I was like four or five, I didn't know – you didn't know the difference between an American and someone from Pakistan or something like that. You, you didn't have a concept of tribes yet. But I feel like when you're born into chaos in a way, you probably get that younger. You, you yeah. probably have an idea of that, no? So I had – 
very young age from from the time i could speak and understand some things i i knew that and the primary reason for that is because every house we lived in or everywhere we lived we didn't have more than two rooms mm-hmm. you see we had i had 10 siblings but we you know both of the times we didn't have more than two rooms so what happened in there is like when the adults were talking about these complex issues they were not talking it in a place where we weren't present mm-hmm. so we were either sleeping in that room and they were sitting up or talking about that and we heard it and we knew what was happening because they were discussing that you know somebody got arrested or somebody was you know harassed today or somebody was um you know persecuted or somebody was deported and all of those conversations happened uh in the open so i knew from the very young age that and and then from a very young age from like basically first grade i basically knew that i had to pretend to mm. to be somebody else than uh than than who I actually was so you know in going first grade you realize yeah that. in first grade i you know, the first day I went to school, I didn't say I was an Afghan refugee. I said, oh, I'm from, like, this far village in Pakistan. They didn't have a copy of your records, obviously, or anything like that? No. You just I'm, show up to school? I just show up to school. Now, what about your name? Is your name a telltale sign at all, or how does that work? No, because most most names in that region are Muslim names. Got it. So it's, it's like, pretty much the same. They're all the same. They, they're Arabic names. So they're all somehow similar and what about your parents too because you know your dad was a veterinarian yeah serious guy what what is how was he making a living in pakistan and how much of an adjustment well i imagine it was an enormous adjustment but like what what kinds of things was he doing and and i assume he was getting the same second class treatment that you were getting if if the rent on the house stories consistent across a lot of other things yeah, so that's actually another interesting point that my dad was actually not allowed to ba- work in Pakistan. Not allowed Afghans, to work. Yeah, Afghans were not allowed to um, work in Pakistan in in fields that were more reserved for mm. the Pakistanis. So what my dad uh, was doing was he was going all the way back to Afghanistan to work. So every month he was going back to Afghanistan. He was working for twenty five. 27 days of the month and then he was coming home for four or five days and you know bringing all the money back and buying um groceries and everything for the entire month and then he was Holy going back shit so he was going back to afghanistan he had a clinic uh in afghanistan was it back where you where he was originally from or was it closer uh, it, it wasn't where he was from. It was in a different province. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily closer, but it was in a place where there was more um, uh, livestock and there was more uh, opportunities for him to uh, to make money. And he didn't have problems crossing the border or getting caught as to what he was doing, basically like taking his own remittances back. You know, th- this wasn't like an issue with, in the middle of this whole civil war or even the aftermath when you had the Taliban and stuff like that? So, I mean, this was mostly when Taliban were in power. And when Taliban were in power, most of Afghanistan, I mean, it was the poverty. Poverty was extreme, but it was because they had such extreme 
uh, laws, there wasn't much crime. The crime mm. was super low. Because if you, if you stole something, <laughs> they would cut your freaking arm. Yeah. So um, that, 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 was, that basically encouraged uh, a lot of people to uh, not steal. So this last time I was in Afghanistan, a lot of people, it, it was sort of making a joke, is that, you know, back the the previous government, when they would arrest uh, thieves and they would put them in the back of the truck, you know, as soon as the police would start driving, they would jump from the truck and run away. And now they're like, when the Taliban arrests the thieves, they put them in the back of the truck and they just sit there and don't do anything. <laughs> because if you make a sudden move, they're going to fucking shoot you. So, um, at the time, the... Most of the time, my dad didn't, and my dad was a smart guy. He 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 would blend in. He didn't he didn't look like he was you know carrying money or carrying anything. He was well respected in the community, and he made sure that he didn't it didn't look like he was he had money. Did he also have? Because he took obviously his wife and kids to Pakistan, but extended family were they all still in Afghanistan, or were they spread out as well in other places? Um, most of my siblings and my 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 parents initially um, we were all in Pakistan, but by the time I actually was, um, by the time I was seven or eight, my siblings started. Because uh, I'm the second youngest, mm. and there's a there's a large gap between the ages. Uh, so because so my eldest sister is about forty five. Okay, uh, forty five fifty, uh, almost twice my age. <laughs> I love how you don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's too many. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, yeah, she's almost twice my age. So they were already married off, and they had their own, you know homes and families uh in fact i have and they went back to afghanistan you're saying uh no they they were just in pakistan in different places mm. um and then my sister actually um came to the u.s uh, my eldest sister came to the u.s in 1995 uh she won wow. a lottery yeah she won the diversity visa lottery and that's how oh, she, she won a literal lottery a literal lottery. i thought you were saying that as like a phrase Sure. No, no, no. She she won a lottery. There's a program called the Diversity Visa Lottery. So you basically put your name down and then they, they shuffle and then <laughs> the people whose names come out. Wow, well, good for her. Gets the uh, gets the uh, visa to the United States. So she just left and then the rest of you were still over there. We were all there. And then uh, my sister with her family lived here and kind of made a life for herself here. And then she invited my parents to come. Did you ever visit before you actually came or no it was okay no so in 2006 both my parents came to the u.s and uh i was actually left in, in pakistan <laughs> i was doing math in my head i'm like wait a minute you didn't come here in 2006 no though. so they the two of them came and all the kids were still back all the kids were still back who'd they stay with uh so at this point all my other siblings had moved out to different places okay and yeah and but i was about 13 years old and i became the man of the house so at 13 i was taking care of um three of my siblings Uh, but you're the second youngest 
So a younger sister and then an older sister. Uh-huh. But but in Pakistan and most of those countries, it's it's the male that is sure. that does everything around the uh, anything outside the house, and also like I did a lot around the house as well. But sort did of you, did you get a job? Like did you or no? I mean, my parents send money okay. back because my dad got a job here and he was sending us money back. That's cool. Um, so that wasn't an issue, and also my brothers and my siblings they supported us as well. When they came over to America, were they here? Did were they able to get like a visa to come here or? Yeah, they got an immigration visa. So my sister, because you can't bring, you can if your parents are in another country, you can apply for them to come. It takes about four or five years to bring your parents uh, for them to immigrate here. So they did, and then oh, to immigrate to immigrate to the U.S. Full blown, like become yeah. a citizen. Well, you don't become a citizen; you become a permanent resident first. Okay. You become a permanent resident, and then five years later, you become a citizen. Mm. So. They came, they became permanent residents in 2006, and then they applied for us, for us to come yeah, immigrate to the U.S. And when did you come? Uh, 2010. So it took about, about a little over four years for us to uh, come to the U.S. as well. Uh, and th- th- these were the minor children. And then the rest of my siblings were still all over the place. And so my last uh, brother came in 2019 mm. so it started in 1995 and my last brother came in 2019 wow so it took 23 years and where did you guys come in america where'd you move to omaha nebraska what a random pl- <laughs> omaha nebraska how'd you how'd your sister land on that uh so my sister first went to california and she couldn't find a good job she, the the life the standard of living was too expensive and they couldn't afford it. So my cousin was living in Omaha, Nebraska, and he basically called them and was like, hey, there's jobs here and it's cheap. And <laughs> if you just get a just a random job, you can support your family. So but they went to Omaha. Outside of, your, outside of the cousin, was there like, was there any sort of Afghan community there? Or was I it think pretty there were, much? There were a dozen families there. Um, That's something. So it's funny. University of Nebraska at the time, it's called the Afghan Cultural Center. Um, it had that. And in the 70s, it was pr- producing propaganda papers for Afghanistan against the Russians. Hmm. So <laughs> Full circle right there. Yeah. So uh, that had created some community in that area because a lot of Afghans were working there, producing books and stuff for Afghanistan. Their Their job was to actually... Their job was to, it's called the Nebraska Printing Press and uh, University of Nebraska Printing Press. Their job was to print books for the children to in the schools that they were living in the refugee camps in Pakistan for Afghan, refu- for Afghan refugees. Instead, they were basically printing propaganda books mm. against uh, the Russians and basically encouraging children to learn about weapons and bombs and, you know, you know our children's book here in the U.S. It's like A apple, B ball, and C cat and stuff. Yeah, those books were basically like A atomic bomb, yeah, B. <laughs> A A A airplane and B bomb and C like something else related yeah. to war. And you know there were poems that my uncle 
so-and-so has an AK-47 and he uses that AK-47 to fight the Russians. Those were basically like poems and stuff in those books. And again, those were produced by here in America. They were, they were, they were um, all written by people here in America and produced and it was supported by CIA and, you know, so it was. Well, there's uh, your answer right there. (laughs) It was useful is the answer. Yeah wild so but when you come here did you speak any english at the time or did you have to learn that from scratch oh i speak fluent english you did yeah i did because uh when i was in pakistan most pakistan schools are uh basically mostly english and english is like a second language in really yeah Hmm. um a lot of the good schools urdu they only have as a language most of all the science subjects and everything is in english but it's it's the reminiscent of the british empire God, that makes sense. So, okay. um, I knew my English was really good. I took the the tests and I basically enrolled in high school in just regular English. And I went to high school for about a year and a half. I became a U.S. citizen uh, on um, May twenty fifth. I of what year? Uh, 2012. I graduated from high school, May 24, 2012. I became 18, May 25th, 2012. May 26, 2012. I was on my way to Fort Bragg's to get my clearance and um, ship out to Afghanistan. Now, what made you want to enlist? So I didn't actually enlist at that time. Uh, at that time, I went to speak to uh, an Air Force recruiter and i was like i want to fly planes mm. i had watched top gun at the time oh that's helpful so i was like but you know i went to the wrong branch i was like air force okay air force they fly planes <laughs> <laughs> so i went to him and he basically like talked to me and he's like oh so what's your background and i was like oh you know afghanistan i speak six languages and he's like, oh, you're fluent? And I was like, yeah, I'm fluent. And then he's like, well, I don't think enlisting in the Air Force is, I think we, there's bigger needs for you right yes. now. So they hit the lottery with you. They're like, oh, yeah. shit, we got one. <laughs> yeah. So they sent me to a different recruiter. And I went to that guy. And basically, I was, uh, I wasn't given any answers. Like, they're like, oh, okay. Do you want to make a lot of money? I was like, <laughs> I'm 18. Of course I want to make a lot of money. Uh, and then I was sent to North Carolina, Fort Bragg's, where the Joint Special Operations Command is. Mm. So I went there. I did interviews. I took tests in six different languages, and I aced all of them. So Special forces, though. This is like, you know. Yeah. You bumped up some steps there from where you first walked in. I mean, not just special forces. It was uh, one of the most elite tier one units in the United States military. But I didn't know at the time. You're just blind on this. You're like, all right, tell me where to go. Yeah, they're they're telling me where to go and they're telling me what to do. And I'm acing all tests, you know. And, you know, I actually, in high school, I had 4.3 GPA and, you know, even more than the 4.0 because <laughs> I 
it went, when I came to the US um, in high school, I was taking all AP classes and actually got into a lot of prestigious schools uh, for college. But I couldn't go to college because I had to support my parents mm. and my family. Um, we could not um, survive without me actually getting a job to support the rest of my family. And now you also happen to land yourself into a really, as far as like paying what the government goes, like a pretty high paying first job Yeah, doing this to support. And you're going to get in a situation where you're going to have to use your skills, meaning they're mm-hmm. going to be sending you to some yeah. of the very same places or yeah. the same place that, that you came from. I'll let you guess how much I was making a year doing that job. I have nothing to go off of, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say I'll say an absolutely stupid number. Uh, hundred ten. So, doing that job at the age of eighteen, I was making quarter million dollars. Quarter million dollars. Yeah, I was making quarter million. Bro, dollars. the FBI doesn't even pay that. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I got that job, and you know, I get shipped to Afghanistan, I land in Bagram, and then from Bagram I get on another small plane, private charter plane, um, just a four-seater, and I go into this remote place, and I land there. I go there, and I've never seen, like, this kind of people, like, they all have beards, and they're, like, jacked and (laughs) tattooed and, you know, just... A whole different world. Uh, and each, every one of them, they all have gray beards. Like, they're all in their late 20s. Or, I mean, only a few of them were in their late 20s. Most of them were over 30. And when you walk in, yeah, they I mean, look at you. What's, what's, what's the face? Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got to drag this kid around. Yeah. So, I'm 18. And I go in there... <clears throat> But they had seen my credentials from before. They had seen what was on paper. They were actually very excited. Because before me, they were taking six people with them. Oh, because they they needed one for each. Yeah. And now you checked all the boxes. Yeah. So what that does is, you know, this tier one team goes on every mission they do is they go on a helicopter. And when you are flying a helicopter at that elevation, every person matters. They can, they could only take four people per helicopter. Yeah. So when I got there, I actually saved them a helicopter and a half. Every mission they were going, they were they didn't have to take a helicopter and a half. Were you had you worked out before in your life? Like were you working with anything? I was 135 pounds skinny as fuck. You're not 135 pounds now. No, I'm not. You filled out. Yeah. Is that when it happened or did that happen later? Yeah, so that that's when they were they took me in and they basically mentored me and the first thing they did they took me to the gym and he's like this is the gym and you're going to come here every day <laughs> and we're going to train you. So they added a half a person to you pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So I go there and the food is absolutely amazing there. And you have these fridges full of the best kind of nutrition. What are we talking like Meatheads Paradise? Exactly. Like anything you wanted. You know, we could get sushi flown out to us. Mm. Could have, like, we had everything that you asked for was there. 
and protein i mean like the protein um i don't know what they're called but there are these like protein shakes that the fridges were just full love that yeah love and that. in the gym the fridges were full you could just go in grab like, like the pre the pre-made ones the pre-made What's, like meta rx stuff yeah but meta rx tastes like shit these tasted good so yeah they, those are the premium good shit. stuff yeah uh so every time you go into the gym you grab a protein shake you drink it and work out then you leave the gym you grab another protein <laughs> shake and you drink it and then you go to the chow hall which is basically the, the cafeteria and you there's uh chefs in there cooks in there and you ask them what to make for you and they make you whatever you ask them custom custom and um the entire team consisted of 30 uh people but the support element like everybody who was pulling security of the bay like the fob and the kitchen and everything there was a lot more but the team the core team that was actually conducting the mission was only 30 you may have said this i just want to make sure for the timeline in my head and for everyone listening but you had gone in for your first meeting on may 26 mm-hmm. 2012 with yeah. the air force eventually they work your way and you find your way mm-hmm. to the special forces here so now you're settled in with the special forces you've been there a few weeks you're in your routine what what year are we in are we still in 2012 yeah, uh, we're still in 2012 because it didn't take too long. They, it, I, I spent about a month in Fort Braggs to do mm. all the things that I needed to do. Uh, but then soon I found myself in the middle of like this. I learned everything on the job. Because <laughs> uh, I knew a lot of the things that they needed from me, but everything else that was pertinent, I learned on the job. Did you also have a timeline yet on when the next deployment would be that you would have to be ready for? Or did that... No, I mean, I mean, for the next four years, I remained there. It wasn't, I, I wasn't getting deployed for a certain amount of time. I was there for the next four years. I would come home every six to seven months for a month vacation, and then I'd just go back. Mm. So, you know, and, you know, I had incredible time with those guys. Like, they were the absolute best uh, humble guys down to earth. They were not young guys who were obnoxious and, you know, unprofessional the most professional guys I've ever worked with and the most down-to-earth guys I've ever worked with. That's awesome. Um, the most caring, because they all had children as well. Some of them had children that were my age. Mm. So they looked at me as like, uh, you know, they mentored me. They looked at me as one of their child. And they really, really um, made a change in my life. So, you know, I'm, continue to be amazed at what I learned from that experience continues to propel me. So initially I was just doing interpretation, but now where the interesting part comes is I became so good at the job because, you know, I knew all the different accents Mm. for the languages. So for example, if we went to a target and because before we went on the target, we would have a briefing and we were like, we were looking for this guy. He's from this place. He's from this region. He is here visiting because he wants to conduct an attack or wants to do something. So so we would go to the target and I would start talking to him because he would try to blend in with all the people. And this is after the four years of Fort Bragg, obviously, what we're um, talking about right now. So it, it, it's about a couple years down the road okay. as I become more part of the team 
Um, so I'm, I'm talking to these guys and, you know, the, the terrorists would try to blend in with the local people and I'm talking to the local people and I'm like, okay, you're local, you're local. And then in the middle, somebody would just speak some random accent and I'm like, goose, well, you don't yeah. belong here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a lot of the times it became very useful for me to do that job and uh did a lot of different things and you know working with tier one teams you sign a lot of ndas so so much of what i did with them you know you can't obviously say can't details. talk about it yeah. and um it would also be disrespectful to the team to actually you know talk details and um expose some of their work that they do and sure. things that they do or you know even the name of the team or any details about them are you so, allowed to say broadly what any of the any of the countries that you may have gone to if not no worries but. oh i mean we went to many different places but again like it, it, it that's also sort of like because we went to some countries that you weren't supposed to go <laughs> <laughs> it's like sometimes the gps stopped yes. working and you know there's no lines on the on the ground so you kind of you don't see lines from the sky <laughs> yeah exactly it's not like a borderline <laughs> yeah exactly there's, no, there's, there's, there's nothing like that on the ground so sometimes you uh, venture into places that you're not supposed to be and the gps just doesn't pick up and you end up you know killing some dudes and you go back mm. um but you know we went to a lot of different places so how many years were you in so i was with that team for four years and from 2012 2016 i was with that team and then in 2016, I came back to Northern Virginia and I, cause I wanted to go back to school. I had made enough money and I'd done enough adventure. I, I wanted to go back to school and I, I want to actually go to medical school. Mm. So was that, it, was that a little bit from your dad being a veterinarian or? Absolutely. It was, uh, from, from living in refugee camp, from seeing my dad, um, all of it. Uh, in refugee camp, the number one thing that most people died from was minor infections and mm. things that they just couldn't get um, treated. And, and they were very minor infections. It's They just couldn't get antibiotics or something and they would die from it. And I saw uh, my best friend growing up. I was really young. I was like six, seven years old is when you know, one of my best friend uh, fell and he got his foot injured because uh, he was riding a bicycle and he fell and he had a small injury on his foot and then the injury didn't get treated. It got infected and he died from it. Oh. So basically um, what the reason I wanted to go to back to medical school is because I wanted to go back into those communities and, you know, do some good. Uh, 2016, I got into Georgetown University and I, Went to Georgetown, graduated in 2021. It's a real shit school, man. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't go to Harvard, so. Georgetown's pretty it's a good, disappointed. man. disappointed. That's, that's, that's a pretty good start right there, I'd say. Um, so I graduated in 2021, got into medical school, did everything, was ready to go to medical school. The day I was supposed to start classes is when Afghanistan fell. So, so let's go back there. You see that happen. How I, like I've had people in here probably 
four or five times before who did some sort of service and they talk about like 9-11 and the day that happened and how it flipped something in them. Was that – would you describe it as probably a similar moment for you in the sense that like, okay, let's get to work? Yeah, and I think – I mean going to medical school was a dream, right? But I couldn't just close my eyes and not help these people. So – and I was in the best position to help these people. What the work that I had done in Afghanistan and the relationships that I had built and developed and the reach and the team and everything that I had there was just perfect for the kind of work that I needed to do there. So I got to work and I started working with a lot of the same people that I had worked four years ago. So a lot of those people once again needed my help. Now, are they and, still, when you do this, are they still in or are they, because you heard about a lot were, of guys who were out mm-hmm. who then went back. Some of them went back actually and some of them were still there. And you also, I'm just remembering this, I don't know if this is related, but you had, before we got on camera, you had been saying about something completely separate, that during this time period you were a Navy reservist, is that right? I'm still a Navy reservist. And you're still one now? Yeah. So did you get to act in that capacity then for this, or was this, you were starting up your thing and getting the help of your contacts with Special Forces? No, I was mostly doing this with Special Forces and with a number of other agencies, um, and these agencies needed help. And I was providing help to those agencies. When you say agencies? I mean, you know, some three-letter agencies. Gotcha. Um, so they needed a lot of help on the ground. And so I started helping them, started helping the team I was working with before. And just anything I could do. Started collecting people who were stranded all over, all across Afghanistan. And I built a team of over 100 um, drivers and uh, escorts and all kinds of experts within two days. And then they all got to work and started collecting people all over Afghanistan and bringing them to the airport. When when did you get on a plane and fly over to that part of the world? How fast? Or were you coordinating all this from the United States? Yeah, so I was coordinating all of this from a, the United States because there wasn't enough time. Because to get back there, it would have taken about two, three days while I stood everything up and I was ready to implement everything, ready to deploy my teams in Afghanistan. And, uh, um, and they were doing everything... Uh, under my command. Did you, how fast did you open up Human First Coalition or was that not a thing yet? Uh, it actually happened very quickly. Uh, when so we, this was a part of yeah. that. Okay. So that also happened very quickly because a te- we, we had a team here in the U.S. as well. We had a team of over 40 uh, strong here in the U.S. and they were all volunteers. Uh, so we stood that up and we stood team in Afghanistan. And when you stand up a team like that, you can't just, willy-nilly be like oh we're a collection of people you have to organize them under something that's where human first came from so very soon i realized that i can't just be a one-man army and um if it's not organized and if it doesn't have a name under which they all basically sort of feel a belonging then it's it's gonna it's gonna fall apart very quickly so i decided to create human first and we applied to be a, a NGO, a 501c3, mm-hmm. right away. 
and then we didn't get the uh, regist- like we didn't get a recognition as a 501c3 until a couple of months later but as um as, as a registered entity we could we could operate as a 501c3 um because we had the intentions to register it as a 501c3 and i'm also trying to understand this on the spot here just for like the logistics but when you set up something like this can you basically in the heat of what is a now crisis moment especially apply for I don't know if this is the right term to say for it, but like a government contract in a sense that you get access to these existing forces, special forces, agency people in an official deal with the government that provides you resources to coordinate and basically gives you some control over the matter? Or what's the process here? So I think it wasn't so much as you get a control or force over it. It's just you kind of collaborate. It's a public-private partnership. And it's um, basically you do what they don't have reach or access to just because they are held by rules and regulations and higher standards than private organizations. So they were completely banned from leaving the base, leaving the airport. They couldn't leave the Cobble. the wire. They, no, not Kabul, just the airport, like the, the, the Kabul airport wire. They couldn't leave that. Couldn't go outside the walls. Yeah. So that became very difficult because between those that wire and the people they needed to help were several Taliban checkpoints. Can I? Can we go back for one sec just mm-hmm. so that we can set the scene here correctly? Because, I mean, people, they at least watched the news. They yeah. saw some of these indelible images that were yeah. horrifying that we all saw at the airport. So they know what you're talking about there. But... Biden, as you pointed out earlier, says in March or April 2021, we're going to pull out sometime this year, a few months. Mm -hmm. They go to pull out in August. Yeah. Literally, it's the whatever Americans were left, abandon the bases. They leave the shit behind. The Taliban's, you know, taking propaganda videos with all this shit. They're in the old president's house at his desk. Yeah. And anyone who was pulled out who did not make it out on one of those Apache helicopters or whatever, they went to the airport. How big is this airport? How many people were there? Who was there? Let, let's start there. Like, yeah. like, like what was going on? So this is about uh, 16 days before the U.S. completely pulled out. That's when the government that we had put in place, it's called the Republic, that fell. And Taliban basically took over everything. And they took over the presidential palace and the U.S. embassy still has all of its staff. Mm. So the priority for USG is to move all of the embassy staff. Well, if you see that uh, Chinook helicopters going from on the news, going from the embassy to the uh, airport, that's when they were transferring all of the um, embassy staff. And that's the largest embassy in the world that we have. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. So Afghanistan embassy is the largest in the world that we have. And there were a lot of people, at least five, 6,000 people just at the embassy. So they were trying to move those people. And it became chaotic very quickly. The Kabul airport is tiny. It's only one runway. They only have one runway. One plane can take off or land at a time. So it's not very big. Um, it's probably the size of a small town airport. 
in America. If that, um, yeah. and if that, it has it has a total of three terminals. Well, by I mean terminal in America means a little bit more. It has basically three planes can be um, um, loaded or offloaded at sure. one time. Yes. So, um, and then one plane can fly or um, land uh, at one time. So, and then it only has one entrance, that's civilian entrance. It had three military entrances, but it only has one civilian entrance. So, everybody rushed that one entrance. And since all of the security, the military, everybody had left, had just abandoned all of their position, it was basically open season for the civilians to take over the runway. So... Mm. The civilians basically uh, overran the airport and they were on the tarmac. And these are effectively, not to be too obvious here, but to go back to your initial roundabout numbers, we're talking about members of the 5 million of the 40 who hate the Taliban and are horrified at what's about to happen. Exactly. So they are like clinging to planes. They are... Planes can't take off. Apaches are doing like very low flies and nobody is bothering. And that's when we, I think, sent 4,000 additional troops to do the, to clear the runway. Just to the airport. Just to the airport. Um, And that didn't help at all because when they got, it was too late. Um, There was. How'd we get the troops in there? Do we fly them on a yeah, plane? Yeah, they, they, like they flew on a plane, planes? but at the time, the runway was already cleared. And it was cleared at a, a very con- unconventional way, but I'll keep that at, at that. You can't uh, talk about that? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, so it, the runway is cleared, but the people who had overran the airport, about 25,000 remained there. And they basically... Uh, sat them down in the different, um, basically the the spaces that were there for planes. They um, kept them there. And then instead of just kicking them out of the airport, they started flying them out. (laughs) So they have these C-17s that they were filling with 900 people. Yeah, I put one of those pictures in the corner. I remember some of those images. It's wild. So they started putting them on the planes. And now... Once they secured all of the perimeters of the airport, millions of people continued to uh, go towards the airport because they were like, it was basically, they. everybody heard that there are American planes and they're taking everybody to the U.S. Was there any concern? I mean, I remember thinking this at the time, but I didn't really know what the logistics were with, you know, some of the attempted diplomacy, I guess, with huge air quotes there, you could say, mm-hmm. but was there concern about these planes being shot out of the sky? Uh, I, I mean, it, it. most people think that it all just happened in a vacuum. We were talking to the Taliban, and basically, like, the USG was talking to the Taliban, and there was an understanding, and the Taliban were allowing it. The Taliban were providing security for the airport. The Taliban were not letting um, bad actors to go to the airport. Um, they were providing security for the airport where all yeah. these people who were screaming and crying, trying to get the fuck away from them, being afraid of being killed if they yeah. help the Americans at all, also are. Yeah, at this point, <laughs> because, I mean, Taliban at this point were victorious. They just got a country 
and to themselves and they didn't care about like a bunch of people and they didn't want to show that on the news as well they didn't want people to see because there was so much coverage at the time as well the Taliban didn't really want people to see the coverage of masses of people getting killed and the credit that i would give to the Taliban is that even though they dissent in some places but mostly they do listen to their senior leadership so from the top if it comes you're not to touch anybody that's trying to leave that's what everybody will do hmm. so which is you know huge considering how undisciplined they are uh that's or or, or you know it's 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 complicated to even say that that they're not disciplined because they they took over a country that was supported by the US for the last 20 years. Um yeah. Anyway, and, yeah. But, so, but just on a side point right there, you had said something earlier that was in the middle of a bunch of other stuff, but it's it's a point that should be reiterated. We are so used in this country to looking at tomorrow yeah. or like today. Yeah. You know, and you were talking about how this is generational stuff. Yeah. And to look at the Taliban, it's like you know, they just they got beat down into a corner in 2001 2002 and they licked their wounds and they slowly but carefully recultivated yeah. and so if you you know obviously we can disagree with that as we should because of who they are and what they represent but mm-hmm. there there is a lesson that should be learned from that that probably won't be but there's a yeah. lesson that should be learned from that yeah so that's happening and in fact that what's really ironic is some of the taliban were actually treating those people better than a different force that was supported by the us were treating i won't go into that but there was what do you mean they're like opening doors for them and shit or like what what do you mean when you're saying treated better like it, it's hard for me to process like the <sighs> taliban's treating people well so so there's a taliban checkpoint right uh-huh and although they are harassing them they are like kind of making fun of them they are like they're not killing them you know mm. but we're going that far yeah. okay so then you go there and then we deployed a force that you know that was basically is a militia that was trained by us they are like literally shooting into crowds why they're just shooting into the crowds just because they are mercenaries They, But why are they shooting into the crowd? You control the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Um not the best <laughs> approach, but that's what they were doing. And then the third <sighs> line of control is uh the US military. So this is happening and there is so many people that nobody can get through. Like this place is just surrounded and there is hundreds of thousands of people. So what we did was we determined HLZ's helicopter landing zones all across the city. HLZ's? And, yeah, helicopter landing zones. Oh, uh, basically oh, where helicopters can up on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh where where helicopters can land. So we picked different locations where it was kind of like an open area where a helicopter could land. So what we would do, we would the people that were eligible and the people that worked with us, the people that we knew, uh we would find them collect them and then drive them to that location a helicopter would come land and take all those people to the airport 
Mm. So that's how we did most of the evacuation. Now, so we've been going through basically the instant on the ground scene there, which is great to set it as yeah. far as like what the logistics look like there. But all the while, you are, as you had pointed out, back in America right now, quickly within two days, I think you said, siphoning up a team together yeah. that is comprised of government people, including agencies and military, mm -hmm. where you are coordinating to get people out of Afghanistan. So the first question is, were you getting like a master data, were you getting access to like a master database of individuals who had been translators or just helped in, or as you had said earlier, like cooks in a camp and stuff like that? Yeah. And you, and it was your job to coordinate where these people might be right now or to get in touch with them if possible? Like, what did the scene look like in America? Here? Yeah. So, so I have a team on this side and they have their computers open. They have lists of people. I have a team on this side who has computers open. They have WhatsApp and, you know, um, the apps that we were using to communicate to Afghanistan. And then I have team over there who is talking to another agency and this agency is giving them names and contact numbers and um, phone numbers, contacts, addresses. Then I have a team over there who is doing another thing. So the team over here is giving me, it's like, okay, there is these, 40 people, they've been vetted. They've been vetted through like either DOD, one of the agencies, or State Department. Giving me the list, I'm taking the list, taking one look at it, kind of making sure that it goes through my like sort of a glance. I'm giving it to this team. I'm like, okay, this is a list. Give this list to the team on the ground and, and who was on who was on the ground? Uh, th this is the team that I built on the ground. And most of the people that are part of the ground are actually my first cousins. These are all related to me. Okay, so when you're saying team on the ground, I was thinking of this wrong a little bit. You don't necessarily mean like the people working in special forces or agency or something like that. You were talking about literal native Afghan citizens on the ground who have networks to be able to help in any, let's say, like smuggling processes that got to happen to get people out. So there's both because okay. these people, the, the natives can get in places without getting noticed. They're going to those far places, okay. but the helicopters coming, these are special forces helicopters. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm basically like determining, pre but, but this helicopter zone is right outside the airport. So it's not far. Um, there is open areas right outside the airport and that's where we're landing these we're bringing these people by cars and then the helicopter is landing. So I'm telling this team to give these names to the team that's on standby. And they're going picking them up. Another person, I'm like, um, so they are, but the only team that exclusively only I was privy to and I was handling was those special forces teams. I was talking to them directly. I was like, hey, so... These people, then this person would be like, okay, they've been picked up. They're in route. They're five minutes away from the location that they're supposed to be. That's when I'm talking to the guys, the special forces teams. I'm like, hey, guys, they'll be there in five minutes. And that's when they start rolling and then go. And it's multiple. And this one is like, okay, that, because we had over 20 teams that were picking up people. And then they were like, okay, this other team is 20 minutes out from where they're supposed to be. 
And then this other person, this other volunteer comes to me. is like, okay, this other team is about to reach the HLZ. So every time one of those groups is reaching the HLZ, I am communicating back to the uh, special forces teams that have the helicopters that, hey, this team yeah. has reached go. Uh, the helicopter needs to be there to pick them up. This is insane logistics from being across the world. I yeah. mean, and obviously, like, it's not like there's any language problems. You speak all the languages, so you can handle yeah. both ends of it. But still, like, we're talking, at least from my seat, how I'm picturing it, these are two five-minute window type things where you mm -hmm. don't have a lookout who's going to, like, point out, like, oh, what's going on there? <laughs> you know what I mean? If that. Yeah. You don't even have a guarantee of that. And yet you got to figure out match government mm -hmm. with resources like flying in fucking helicopters yeah. and shit. And then assets on the ground who mm -hmm. you don't know where they are or what's going on or who's watching them. Yeah. And you got to bring all these together and you're the guy on the iPhone on the other end going, okay, good, yeah. clear. Yeah. That's nuts, man. Yeah, it was – I mean nothing like this has ever happened in history. It's just absolutely incredible. But I think uh, COVID really helped with that, that – we got kind of got trained for this, that during COVID, we were doing a lot of things, you know, remotely, uh, oh, through right, different, right. different things. Um, so as they're picking them up, but so we were, we were holding these helicopters in a secret place. We had about six helicopters and these six helicopters are being kept in a secret location. So we were running these operations from August 18, so almost like, almost uh, actually from from August 17, 18, we started these missions until August 26. And what happened on August 26 is one, a suicide bomber. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, a suicide bomber went off right outside the airport. Second, Taliban found or secret like location of the helicopters and all the helicopters were destroyed oh a different suicide bomber well not not a, the one that i was thinking of so the one suicide bomber happened at the airport yes but then taliban found the helicopters so they just went and destroyed the heli well they were going to go and get the helicopters but before they could get there we destroyed the helicopters ourselves so that the taliban won't get their hands on them so you get the call that like, okay, we're out of helicopters now. Yeah. And you're only eight days in. How many people had you evacuated at this point? Approximately. Uh, close to 7,000, but we didn't really keep numbers actually. You got 7,000 people out on, on helicopters? Yeah. Uh, at, in eight until days. days? In eight days. Um, and, and that was actually the majority of the evacuation. After tw August 26th, not, not much happened. How big are these helicopters? Uh, pretty big. How many people can fit? So on six it? helicopters, and usually we could fit about uh, so the, the two types of helicopters. One that you can only fit like about ten, fifteen people, but then there's another helicopter that you could fit up to sixty people in it. But still, this is a lot. Seven thousand people in eight days is a lot of trips. And yeah. where so they would take off? Where are they taking them immediately? The trip was only five minutes to where to the airport. Oh, just literally getting them down there so they could get them. Okay. All right. So they're picking them up, flying up, going over the wall, and landing at the airport. Because they can't go, there's no way to go. Um, I mean, there were ways that we used those as well.
but not enough to matter. I can't believe this went on for eight days until the Taliban did something about it. Yeah. Like, that's crazy that you guys pulled that off. I just imagine, like, a fucking helicopter going <laughs> over and over, and they're not going to see this? You can see the pictures. There's pictures of them. Are, are they on the internet? Yeah. Helicopter. The it's not, not the pictures like the famous one that they were, like, splicing with... Uh, with the picture of Saigon. The Vietnam, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not, not that not one. Not that one. There were helicopters, like, going back and forth between different places that were picking up people. Let me see if I can, if, if you can spot one here on Google yeah. Images if I pull it up. All right. So, and I'll put it in the corner of the screen if I can. Yeah. That one was the one they were splicing yeah. with, like, Saigon. That's a different type of thing. Mm -hmm. That's not one of yours. Yeah. So, it was mostly, like, these kind of helicopters and I'll put that those in the helicopters... Okay. Um, so mostly like, like this helicopter over here. Which one? This one. The CNN one. Yeah. Because they most, they all looked. Civilian? You, if you see this helicopter, it doesn't look military. Yeah. So it, they mostly looked civilian. So it was kind of like more. That wouldn't tip them off more? That, that, that wouldn't tip them off because, um, they would get tipped off by military helicopters. Hmm. I'll have to think about that one a yeah. little bit more. I guess I could see that going either way. Yeah. But still, okay. Yeah. So then they eventually they do they do get tipped off. So that's out. So August 26th, you've gotten 7,000 people out. Yeah. Now, you and I, when we were talking in the kitchen before this, we I'd asked you how many people today mm -hmm. are still there including people that are among the estimates that may yeah. be dead. And you said it was around 160,000. 160,000 that are all eligible to be here. There is over 300,000 people who worked with us in some capacity. Okay. And so was, many of them are not eligible because we have made very strict rules of who can come and who can't come. For example, if somebody didn't work with us so for them to be eligible to come here, they must have worked with us for over a year. Mm. So if somebody worked with us for like 11 months and 29 days, they're not eligible to come here. I don't think the Taliban cares though if it was 11 months, 29 days or 12 months and two days. Yeah. You know, they don't like them and they exactly. might do something. Even if somebody went on and a Taliban saw somebody who went on the base for one day, is their life is in danger. So, it, it, so at the at the beginning, those you said it's it was three hundred thousand you had in mind. So one hundred sixty thousand is actually the ones that are eligible and should be here today. today. But I'm saying back then was that what you were saying? Three hundred thousand. Three hundred thousand is the one that actually have worked with us in some capacity, but we just okay. Don't we're not gonna give them the visa necessary to come here. So without getting too bogged down by numbers, essentially at the beginning, you know you have hundreds of thousands of people in this country yeah. who you want to at least try to get out in the chaos yeah. of this. So for eight days, you get out 7,000. Great job, obviously, but mm -hmm. then that gets shut down. So how do you adjust? What's what's the next steps? So, I mean, there were other people doing similar things as well, right? Some people were using secret passageways. Some people, the military itself had Blackhawks and Chinooks that were making trips from the embassy. Uh, you know, at the end, the total number of people by August 31st that were taken out were 120,000 people. 
So that's like the biggest military airlift in history <laughs> in such a short time. And and did all these people end up in the United States or did they take them to also some other countries around there? So none of these ended up in the United States right none away. None of them did. None of them ended up in the United States right away. Like they weren't taken from Kabul to the U.S. Right, right, yes. yes. They all went to uh, bases across the world. Yes. And most of them, majority of them, like probably about 100,000 have made to the U.S., some have made it to the other to other countries, but there is still thousands left stranded in actually in these bases as well. So I we guess are it's better in Afghanistan, but still, yeah, we're a year and a half later, and you know, not all of them have still made it to the United States, which is a point that I want to make. The point that I'm trying to make here is that these people were not willingly brought here in the United States. the The purpose for them to go end up on that secondary base was to be vetted to make sure that we didn't pick up some fucking terrorist while we were in the heat of the moment and make sure that everybody that none of them were uh, security threat for the US um, there were some people that sh- uh, that they found out that cannot go to the US mm. for whatever reason something came up on their background and they weren't able to come to the US and they are in another country now and they will not come to the US. Well, and honestly, that's probably data like that is probably a good thing because we all know the law of large numbers, you're going to have creeks in the ship and people who want, who may be nervous about this type of system want to see that we are catching yeah. people who did slip through the cracks because you know, some people yeah. had to. So that yeah. that's not a, that should be a, that should be a tailwind to this kind of thing. That's that's the point I want to make because most people just think that because we evacuated so many people that people who shouldn't be here in the U.S. made it to the U.S. They didn't. There were rumors and Republicans were trying to use that as a sort of a, a um, ploy to say that people who shouldn't be here made it, but, you know, we did a very good job at um, vetting them in those secondary lily pads is what we call them. And then after that, they were brought to the U.S. See, I don't know why they would pick that, like looking at the Republicans in that situation. I don't know why they would pick that as a, as a good hill to die on because, correct me if I'm wrong here, more people in the military than not lean conservative. So that's their constituents, right? Yeah. And also correct me if I'm wrong here, Across the military, the support for the people of Afghanistan who helped us is astro-fucking-nomical. Yeah. So I think the reason they do that is because it's easy to... Fear-mongering is very easy in America. Like if you make... If you, that right. Yeah. If you tell somebody somebody's coming to like harm you, it's very easy to do that. And, you know, Americans are one of the most protected people in the world. Like, there's countries where you go to sleep, you don't know if you're going to wake up or not. Yeah. So, but but we are the most scared people. Like, we're like, oh, somebody's just going to come and, you know, do things to me. Um, So, it's very easy to fearmonger because we, we, they do that all the time with many different, like, 
um, ethnicities of people. They're going to come and, you know, rape our women and kill our children and, you know, do do that sort of stuff. Um, so it's easy for them. And one thing I want to say about that is the military right now is actually very... It's a lot of soldiers that I talk to, a lot of uh, military veterans I talk to, they're really confused of what is happening with the Republican Party. You remember last summer when the Republicans voted against the PACT Act? Is that the burn pits thing? Yeah. Yes. The Republicans voted against that. It was one of the most necessary bills yes. for veterans. And the Republicans were like, oh, no, we don't care about veterans. Especially veterans that were dying because of burn pits. Because they had cancer. They developed cancer because of those burn pits. Yeah, just had one in here. Chris yeah. Cathers has stage four late cancer because of that. A bunch of dudes were working through back channels, pulling resource where we could to get people out of, out of Afghanistan safely. And you were thinking about going over there. Dude, if I could, man. With stage I was still four learning. cancer. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It's just physically, I, I knew, you know, I had to make that assessment. I'm like, look, I could be more of a hindrance because of, you know, this thing's not tested. You know, my hip, my glute, my quad, and I had it all, and my femur taken out. So if I need to carry somebody, like, I know I can do it, but not like I used to be able to do it. Exactly. So they voted against that. So I don't know if they really care about their veteran constituents. Uh, and veterans are really pissed off about that. Um, so they're going to pick any point they possibly can. And that's that was one of the points from the Afghan Adjustment Act that they picked up. They were basically like, oh, all these people that came here, if we just give them permanent residency here, there may be some people that could be a threat to the U.S. national security. So, but there is specific language in the bill that says that we are going to use the highest standard of vetting for all these people. So nobody can slip through the cracks to actually um, stay here. And it actually is like, it, it, it should be one thing that we should be asking for because the specific language that requires for all those people to be vetted. If there's no bill like that, there's no reason to vet those people. So to make sure that they are um, safe for national security, we should be vetting yes. them. And that's why that bill is so important. And uh, we continue to advocate for that bill. And uh, we hopefully will reintroduce it in Congress uh next month yeah i hope it goes through man yeah I mean, that's just it's crazy to me but back to to where you were in in the story before i got you off track there yeah. for a second you have those seven thousand people out you lose the helicopters now you're coordinating to find other ways to get people out of the country how did how did the mission adjust and did did you add like throughout those eight days and then the weeks after, are you constantly adding people, I assume? Yeah. Like people are volunteering, be it yeah. former military, active mm -hmm. military, yeah. people in the country just want to help, stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my team continued to grow and the mission continued to grow. The mission continued to become more official. The government saw us as a very capable force. The government saw us as somebody who could 
uh, do things. And then it was August 31st. Everybody left. The U.S. military completely abandoned everything and took off. And that's when the real work began. That's when, that's when the work to make a difference that that's when everything that we were going to do, we were on our own. We had to do every single uh, step. We didn't have helicopters. We didn't have planes. We didn't have the airport. We didn't have any way of getting these people out. How the hell do you do that? You have a country that's now under control mm-hmm. of this government who doesn't fucking like you. Yeah. You have no no airport. Mm-hmm. What, what, how do you even like, like you're sitting here, where, where yeah. were you at the time? D.C.? Washington, D.C. You're yeah. sitting in your office in D.C. Yeah. How do and you even start to imagine how you're going to get people out now? Exactly. So the the last day, uh, everybody basically thought that it was over and we had no way of getting these people out. We had left hundreds of thousands of people behind. And the State Department issued a press release and basically said, well, we we can't help you. It's um, the press release is still out there and you can in archives, you can look it up. And basically it was like the press release on August 31st from State Department was like, oh, we are not in country. We can't get you out. There is no hope for you guys. Most of the team cried that night. They all cried and told everybody to go home because we, all of the people that were there, they hadn't gone home. They had just been living. They just in the been living in the for office weeks. for weeks. Now, how many people there? You know, did you're you're a native, yeah. right? How many people there were like you who had family still there and were helping? Um. About ten, about about ten people. Wow! Uh, because they were helping us with a lot of like translations and language and communications and all of that. Um, told everybody to go home, and they all cried. And basically, we had to tell everybody that I mean, it's over. Can't can't do anything anymore. Uh, for two reasons. One, we knew there was a next step. Like, I was preparing for this moment. I was preparing for this moment from, you know, very early on because I could see things with a bird's eye view and I knew we wouldn't be able to get all those people out. Not only people that had worked with us, but American citizens. From a bird eye, bird's eye view, I could see that a lot of American citizens would be left behind. How many American citizens did we have still in Afghanistan? Are you talking about, in this case, people who were non-State like State Department affiliated? Yeah, about 1,400. We had 1,400 wow, U.S. citizens. Wow, that's not two. I didn't realize it was that high. Holy yeah. shit. Uh, about 1,400 U.S. citizens were still on the ground. And because we spent 20 years in Afghanistan a lot of people had just gone to Afghanistan opened a restaurant you know opened a business opened, really yeah yeah there was a lot of Americans who who were uh, doing different things uh, there 
And are these usually? I'm sorry, I gotta stay. Yeah, are these usually like ex-military people who had been there type deal, or is you talking like regular Americans? were like, oh, let's go. Let's some are to Afghanistan. Some are like dual citizens. Like some of some are like native Afghans okay. who are who are that also uh, American citizens. That makes sense. Um, some are actually Americans who just like went there and <laughs> decided to stay, and also like. Because there was so much money there, everybody just tried to get a piece of the pie. Of course. And they, you know, uh, they, they set, set up shop there in Kabul, and so many of them were U.S. citizens. So all of them are left behind. There were dock shelters. There were Americans who were running dock shelters. In Imagine the middle of that. all this. In the middle of that. I mean, they've been running these dock shelters for years, and now they have these animals. And I mean that's great. I it just is can't not even, just one. It's I, it's not just one. There were a few. I don't know. It just seems like it's hard to imagine that was towards the top of the priority list during this time period. I mean, no the, offense, the, they're I love left dogs, behind. But, yeah, the the American citizens that were handling or no, I'm talking for about the dog things. business and yeah. like in general. <laughs> like like I feel like that's not top of the list of things to go start while there's like a war going on in Afghanistan. But yeah. again, love dogs, yeah. so good for yeah. them. Rescuing dogs. Um, <laughs> um, so those people were also there. I, I can't say anything, but because I have friends, uh, the people, some people I know now that were running um, sure. dog rescues there, but I, I mean, they are passionate about it and they couldn't see the dogs in those bad conditions. So they weren't there and not it is, just it dogs, is a beautiful, but animals. I don't want to take away from that or be yeah. misheard. It's a beautiful thing. Animals and all kinds of animals, you know, not just dogs. Um, so they're all left behind and now i have to come up with something so the next so i went home that day um slept and just um my phones were not i didn't put the phones in the same room that i was sleeping because the phones kept ringing and people were crying and sending um, please help. Um, I put the phones in a separate room and I went to bed, slept for about 12, 13 hours and woke up and I was like, okay. I went back to DC and I got the core team back together. Um, the core team being just the five, six of us, we're like, mm. okay, so what's next? Who was on that team? Like, what were the, where did the other people hail from? Like, what were their backgrounds? Military. All, All military. Military, okay. or military uh, federal agencies and um, veterans, all, all kinds, everybody. Um, so we sat down and what are we going to do? But we have no idea. One, we did have one way of, just taking people over ground to Pakistan and then flying them out of Pakistan or taking them over ground to Tajikistan and then flying them out of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. All of those options were on the table, but these options were not enough to get large numbers of people. We could take like maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 people a day, maybe like 100 people a week. And it just wasn't sustainable. It was dangerous. The long drive, 
in remote areas where Taliban are not as controlled or don't have to answer to people. We were not comfortable, but we did a lot of ground runs as well. You're talking about human smuggling operations, essentially. Um, well, I wouldn't call it that. No, no, but I, for a good cause in yeah. this way, yes. But I mean, like, you literally yeah. have to smuggle them, like, yeah. under the beds of trucks and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, so mostly we call it rescue um, because, you know, people do that on the southern border here. And yes. they're not um, very looked at with a... I understand <laughs> completely why you say that. I'm just trying to get the visual because, I yeah. mean, it is a, I mean, we're talking black ops jobs. Yeah, Maybe I can exactly. say it like that. So doing that, I was able to get people for Hillary Clinton out. Hillary Clinton was supporting a lot of women, women's, uh, um, women rights activists and uh, people who had been working for Hillary Clinton in different uh, capacities in Afghanistan. I was able to get all of them out uh, through that ground route. Another very high-profile person that I was able to get out through that route was uh, President Biden's interpreter. Mm. So the president's people reached out to us and asked us to get this pe this person out of Afghanistan, and we did. Um, and many, many more. We were able to get through that way. But how does this happen, though? Like, you, you're able to get these people out. That's amazing. And... You're mentioning that you got to get them across the border, be able to helicopter them from somewhere else. But like, at the take me to the to the front of the chain. So mm -hmm. you identify a person. Let's use the example. Maybe if it's possible, we can use the example of one of the people you just mentioned, like Biden's interpreter. Mm -hmm. You identify who this person is because you're told. You get contacted yeah. by the government, which that's pretty wild that that happened. <laughs> Very cool. And you find out that this guy is at location X, and location X is however far it is inside of Afghanistan. What's the first steps to getting him to freedom? Um, so it, it was a very compartmental process. Uh, the whole thing, there wasn't the chain, every chain link was a separate, uh, uh, sort of separate, they didn't all connect. Mm. And that was on purpose because the person who picked up this guy from the initial position and then took him and gave him to this next person didn't know who he was. Um, didn't know where he was going. Didn't know how far he was going. His job was to pick him up at the house and give him to this next person. And then the next person's job was to give it to the person who was in the next city. It's like an underground railroad. Yeah. Basically. So, and... There were about almost 10 stops of this exchange that happened for every transfer. And it happened to keep things from spilling uh, information. And if somebody picked up a guy in like... Because it took us about 36 hours to get this guy from where he was to across the border to Islamabad. Uh, Islamabad, Pakistan. So along that way, if the person who picked him up initially knew that he was going all the way from where he was to Islamabad, Pakistan, you know, you might think that, why is this guy being taken all the way to Pakistan? Why am I being asked to take this guy all the way to Pakistan? But they don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. They, they, they don't. 
they don't have an idea that they're getting someone who was important to America to a point to where they're going to be able to get out of the country. I'm not saying like in this case they they need to know that it was Biden's interpreter for this one, but like don't they already know that they're getting something valuable away and and who are these people? Like are I thought these were assets on the ground who were passionate to your cause. Yeah. I mean, they were. Most of the at the higher level they were, but then we were also working with a lot of people that uh for example a driver you know we didn't trust a driver mm. or we didn't trust somebody who was whose job was only to deliver a guy from point a to point b and how much do you like is there a rate is it like a market that you got to pay these people for a certain it was amount of time salaries or? so okay. most of these people were salaried and whatever the um so the most of the people that were working for me at the time they weren't doing it because for the salary alone they wouldn't be doing this because it was it was dangerous work. It wasn't you know safe for them to be helping people that could potentially be uh, people that the uh, the Taliban government wanted. Mm. Uh, so it was dangerous work, but they weren't only doing it because of the salary. The salary was just to compensate them, but they were doing it because they were loyal to me, uh, and they continue to be loyal to me. They continue to do that work for me because they're loyal to me. How long? So there's another question. I just keep on thinking of things because mm-hmm. there's so many moving parts here. I hope you don't yeah. mind. But were a lot of these people, say, sources that you had, because you said loyal to me, yeah. were they sources that you had cultivated on the ground in previous work? Or was it more your connections to extended family across Afghanistan? Well, it was not extended family. They're my first cousins. So oh, all these people were yeah, your first cousins. A lot of them are my first cousins. Just be, because, so my immediate family, my brothers and my nephews, there's 53 of us. <laughs> so you can imagine my first cousins, how many of them are out there. There's a lot of I'm them. I'm doing some math. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Uh, it's over close to 200. So, a lot of Ralphs. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. So most of them are doing it because they are blood relatives. Got it. Um, that's great. I yeah. And that's, you know, as far as loyalty so, goes, exactly. you feel pretty good about that, right? Exactly. Um, so that was the people who, who, who were doing all of this work. But at the same time, like I, nobody, not even my first cousins wouldn't know who a person was until they actually made it out. And then they would be on the news and they'd be like, holy shit, didn't we just <laughs> rescue this guy? <laughs> Because when we got uh, the Biden's interpreter out, he was all over the news. Mm. He was on every major news. Um, Jen Psaki was asked in a press briefing about him. So it's a very high profile case. But then I wanted something bigger, something more sustainable, something more um, official. So then, you know, during the most of this work that we had been doing, we had come across many Taliban leadership. And through tribal connections and through tribal relationships, um, we started approaching Taliban leadership. You did? Yeah. So, Are you still in D.C. at this point? Yes. Okay. Uh, I started approaching the Taliban leadership and we started talking to them. And, you know, after like kind of having a casual conversation with them, I'd be like, oh, congratulations. You guys, you got it. You guys are the... Um, and I'm only running a whole operation to get people to fuck away from you. Yeah, congrats. Exactly. So, so I was like, how, how would it sound like if 
we could start the airport operations. How would that sound to you? Now, how does this happen? You hit them with like a WhatsApp DM, yeah. like, yo, what's up, fam? Uh, well, I tell somebody on the ground to find like a connection to them that's related to them. And then we, it's a mutual somebody and uh, tell them who I am. And I run a nonprofit NGO humanitarian aid organization that wants to help people. and That they want to kill. Yeah. Uh, and also... <laughs> bring aid into the country like the the basically the 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 carrot was that we will bring aid into afghanistan like because people were dying of hunger at the point so we told basically the taliban it's like there's millions of dollars of aid that's sitting in all over the world and it needs to make it to afghanistan so how would you feel if the airport operations were to begin so we started pressuring the taliban on like restarting the airport operations and and then they actually, surprisingly, were very receptive to it. And the way, you know, I convinced and started talking to them, it was, it wasn't easy. Like, it wasn't just I hit them up. I was like, hey, <laughs> the airport. And they're like, yes, absolutely. There was a lot longer conversations of hours of speaking. And one of the major points that I was always making that, to connect to the rest of the world, the only way you Afghanistan is a landlocked country, and the only way you can connect to the rest of the world is through these airports. And you must start. Mm. Uh, you, that, that's the number should be your number one priority, and that's that's what you should be focusing on. Is this all over text, or at some point do you also get like vocal or video contact? Oh, both, both, both okay. video, uh, phone calls, uh, and everything. Um, <laughs> it's wild to me. Yeah. And so, so that's all happening, and they are they're receptive to it. They are like, I mean, when when you say things that are logical to any human, it's they kind of like think about it, even though they don't agree with you right away. But then they go back and they sleep on it, and they're like, yeah, I mean, this guy is not wrong. <laughs> so they started working on the airport. They cleared the airport, and now I'm like, hey. How about I do a flight from Kabul airport? It took us almost three weeks to get permission for the first flight. Mm. So we kept asking and asking and asking and asking and going from one person to another. Like, we, First of all, we couldn't find who would be the right person to make that decision from the Taliban side. So that was a challenge to find that person first. And then convincing him to actually let us do the flight. And the problem was also that everybody you called, they were like, oh, yeah, sure, I, I have the authority to do that because it's just how they, they... A lot of them were out there to, you know, make some money. And they would be like, oh, yeah, sure, I can give you permission to fly a plane. I can, I can figure it out. It's just going to cost this much money. And I was like, well, as soon as you, like, say money, it's... I'm, I'm out. Mm. So we started doing that. And three weeks later, we finally got permission to get an, get an airplane into Afghanistan and out. Uh, plane land, uh, plane, actually the day the plane was supposed to land, we get, and this first plane, actually 117, they were all American citizens. They were all American, uh, either citizens or nationals, uh, which some of them had, 
most of them had U.S. passports. Some of them had U.S. green cards. Um, so the day the plane is supposed to come to Afghanistan, we, in the morning, we take all of them to the terminal. They get COVID tested and everything, and their paperwork gets checked. They make, they go through the immigration. They go lit, sit in the waiting room, waiting for the plane to come. All right, now, to get even just getting them to the airport, first of all, are they all local right there? Or are they coming from all over the place? Coming from everywhere. From everywhere. So from it could everywhere. be a 10-hour drive. Yeah. Okay. So... so security just to get them like mm-hmm. let's even say an hour drive forget yeah. the 10 hour ones you have one of your guys go pick up someone at the house even though you're sitting here talking with the taliban on whatsapp you yeah. know go back and forth on text messages you might run into the wrong guy on the way there mm-hmm. and then be like all right we're gonna kill this dude yeah yeah i mean it's <laughs> um done very carefully with a lot of like secret you know phrases and words and using a lot of the um things that i had learned over doing my previous job so it it, everybody makes it safely to the airport and they go into the airport they make it to the terminal they make it through the security they make it through immigration they get their tickets issued now they're just sitting to get on a plane they're all American citizens. So somebody always makes a mistake. Someone had chartered a plane from Syria. Hmm. And as it flew from Syria to come to Afghanistan, Iraq didn't give it permission to cross over there. Um Oh, basically over their airspace. airspace. Mm. So now we don't have a plane. We have all the people. We have permission for the plane to land in Kabul, but we don't have a plane. Wait a second. They can't... They can't fly around... I'm I'm trying to think of the map in my head right now. They can't fly around that? I guess they'd have to go over Iran if they did that or something. Am I right? Apparently, the plane was on a sanction list and couldn't <laughs> couldn't fly over uh it, it just couldn't come to afghanistan what does that mean on a, a plane is on a sanction list it, it's basically like they have done something that the u.s is just like okay i guess this uh syrian company is on a sanction list and it can't fly uh over certain the the permission was actually denied by the u.s embassy in in Baghdad. That's convenient. Yeah. So now I don't have a plane. I have 117 US citizens sitting at the airport. They can't go anywhere. Like they can't leave the airport. Because if they leave the airport now, they're done. They're done. Like Taliban know that they are American citizens. Um, so we arrange blankets, food, water for them at the terminal. The entire staff of the airport leaves. At night. And these people are there with all of my people basically watching over them. Okay, so your people are still there. Yeah. Gotcha. My people are there. But I thought the, you were going to say they're sleeping there alone. I'm like, Jesus no, no, no. Christ. My people were, my team was there with them. They brought them food. They, and, and it's like, it's kind of, 
these are the type of things where you learn how many things humans need. Yeah. Like, okay, this person needs baby formula. This person needs a fucking tampon. This person needs a diaper. This person needs diabetes medication. This person needs hypertension medication. This person is nervous in losing it. So you have to account for all of that and kind of uh, deal with all of that. But at the same time, f- try to find a plane. So I'm running around and trying to see where I can find a plane. And finally, I called the CEO of Camir. Uh, and I'm like, hey, I need a plane. And he's like, well, I got a plane. I can give you a plane. It's going to cost you $360,000. $360,000? Yeah. It's going to cost you $360,000. Is that because of like insurance or, and everything? Yeah, I mean, it's like they had the opportunity to make money. I was, I needed uh, a plane. So it, it's just business. Had you buy the balls. Yeah. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll give you $360,000. Where's the plane? He's like, oh, it's sitting on tarmac in Kabul. <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, turn around the plane, bring it to the terminal and started loading the plane. That was day three of uh, since the people had been at the airport. Were So you were getting funding like right away. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, to be yeah. able to afford all this shit. Yeah. We, we had a lot of uh, major donors. How fast did... So Afghanistan falls, like we said, day one on the news. How fast did you have major donations coming in? I didn't have it right away. And even until, even until then, we were using a lot of our own money as well. Because like I told you before, I made a lot of money doing that. Yeah, but you before. weren't making enough money to be <laughs> chopping off three racks for fucking a plane. I mean, yeah. that's that's crazy town. Yeah, so uh, we were able to raise the money and get the money from, um, and, and, and you know, uh, pay for the plane. So turned on the plane, got everybody on the plane, and that was the first plane that left Kabul with American citizens to Abu Dhabi. Post, post August 31. 30, post August 31. The okay. first plane out of Kabul. And when when was this? September? Uh, uh, yeah, late September. Uh, late end of September. Um, so now you have a comfortable cadence of, okay, we know what it takes to... Let, what was your word? Rescue, yeah. rescue, rescue people around yeah. the country. Yeah, to get them from point A to point B to point C to point D, where being the airport. Yeah, and we once we get them out of the country, we can figure all that shit out mm-hmm. later. So now you go back to your list. Mm-hmm. You had gotten out seven thousand at the beginning. You just yeah, but it's even more surprising what happens next. What? Please do tell. So it's American citizens. State Department sees that we did this. State Department comes back to us. They're like, can you do this again? It's like, yeah, of course. So after that, State Department is paying for the planes. Mm, Got that government funding, baby. Yeah. Love that. So they're paying for the planes and we are putting people on them. Wow. So we did many, many, many flights, thousands. uh, I mean, many flights with thousands of people. So we got thousands of people out that way as well. Did you lose anybody? No. 
You never no. lost a person. No, I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a pro. We don't lose people. Wow, man. Yeah. That's um, that's yeah. some high-level spy shit to a T. Yeah. And you're a dude who at this point was outside of the Special Forces running this from D.C. That is crazy. So I did that. And, you know, at this point I have developed some relationship with the Taliban and, you know, we're comfortable or we're doing things. And at this point I decide I'm going to go visit Afghanistan. So I uh I go back I, I go to Afghanistan to go uh basically do an inventory of what we're doing and how everything is going on. But also it was mostly for the morale of the team on the ground because I wasn't gonna just be like, oh I'm gonna sit here in DC while you guys do all the right all the ground dangerous work. I was like I'm gonna come, you know, see all of them, talk to them and kind of give them more of a motivation and kind of um, uh, the the commitment that I have to them as well and, and show that to them on the ground. And so I went and... How big I, is the network at this point, ballpark? Huge, huge. We have like hundreds of people all across Afghanistan. Every major city we have safe houses, every major city we have... Um, people that we are uh sheltering we were holding at that point in our safe houses about ten thousand people so we were providing food shelter everything like medical babies are born getting born and there are pregnant women that are giving birth to babies there so everything the safe houses was part of this was this a combination like where safe houses included some of your original people you had who were yeah. putting people up, but also now because you have the power of the U.S. government behind you, yeah. you get like access to State Department and agency-related safe houses too? Uh, well, there is no agency-related safe houses at this point in Afghanistan, so we had to be creative and have our own um, sort of safe houses. But also like the people that were left behind uh, after august 31st a lot of those people that were high priority and they were on our lists we put a lot of them in our own safe houses because they had lost their homes mm. uh, they had lost their homes because taliban knew their addresses from before so they couldn't stay there so we provided them with um living um places and that was post august uh, 31st so we had ten thousand people and we started evacuating people and some of them are U.S. citizens and U.S. nationals. And I went to Afghanistan the first time. I spent four days. Everything was great. Everything went well. Taliban were fine. Um, were you were you meeting with some of the guys you had been talking with? Oh, yeah. I, I met with a bunch of Taliban guys. You go, like, just get lunch with them? Or, like, yeah. how does this work? Uh, I went to dinner, and there was, like, there was, like, about 50 Taliban dudes. We just grab food and talked and basically were like they were like oh yeah we we won and we have nothing against america anymore and we're done with fighting and we're just gonna have but i mean that's like talking points right yeah i was gonna say it's talking points and they're like we're done fighting we're gonna have a relationship with the u.s where we don't want to fight anymore and how, how do you want to have let me ask about that though like how how do you sit there and have a normal diplomatic conversation with these guys. I mean, and and I don't blame you. I think a lot of people would say this. You got to hate them. Yeah, but I mean, the U.S. sat down and talked to them, right? 
at this point it's just it's not about me hating them or you know it, it's about saving as many people as we can uh mm. at whatever and you know to go and sit with them it, it's 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 scary and difficult but you know it's the purpose that you're sitting with them and talking to them is bigger than your own fear uh and your own reservations so i i i don't present myself as being um that i don't like them i'm just like oh you guys won it was a war war is over we're fair and square you know it's a different era we're all going to get along uh but i mean i have bigger plans and agendas and uh purpose here it's amazing perspective man it's 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 really impressive that yeah. you can do that and you're going you said there'd be like 50 guys in there yeah about there were about 50 guys and we had like five six lambs slaughtered and like made a big meal and just huh. had a a good old shindig and they slaughter it right there yeah yeah nice nice um pita loves that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um pita won't do well in afghanistan i don't think they i don't think afghanistan is for them um, I think that's a first world problem. Yeah. So uh, that happens. I do great meetings. You know what's really surprising? In fact, like the Taliban guys that I was talking to at the time, they actually gave me like about eight bodyguards to best just be with me all the time and kind of like protect me. You and, trusted them? Um, I mean, I don't know. I didn't have a choice, but also like I, there was that trust built until because initially I didn't trust them, but then we had done like three, four flights with them. I had, you know, had food with them. If any at any point they wanted to do any harm to me or to my people, they would have done it already. Did you have? Did you ever develop some sort of rapport where you had a conversation about philosophy with any of them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we 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 had a lot of conversations, and you know, they were basically like, "We won, we're the victors," and now we are gonna forgive everybody so they in in that sense they kind of felt like they were the 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 good guys and they were the the guys that had the um what what i mean though maybe i should have been more specific there what i mean is did you have any conversations around your views on society and i mean to put it broadly like i guess their politics if that's what you want to call it um why they think that way yeah i and i mean uh, the relationships that i built most of the people that i did build relationships with were more the moderate taliban they're more moderate so glad to hear that (laughs) yeah so it was also like they believed in education and they believed in some freedoms and i mean they're still strict muslims but they also like have seen the world and are somewhat educated and have you know been around for a while to basically like understand that they can't survive without you know kind of getting along with the rest of the world um i try to like i said i'm a chameleon so a lot of the places i just went i'd be like oh yeah you guys are great you know (laughs) it should be like huge fans everywhere (laughs) (laughs) um why are why is it not like this in America? You know, we should just all um, 
adapt this. But it, it, you have to do what you have to do for what you are doing. So it all went well. My guards, I came back and spent some time, had some briefings, and everybody was comfortable, happy how things were going. Um, but one of the things that I saw during this trip was how horrible the situation of the people on the ground was, especially when it comes to humanitarian aid. Uh, people were hungry, it was cold, and just absolutely horrible. People didn't have anything to eat, and that was difficult for me to, to see. So I came back and um, decided I was going to do some more outreach and you know continue to advocate for the people and continue to kind of make sure that the wall doesn't sort of their attention span doesn't run out and Afghanistan is once again forgotten. Uh, I spent some time, did some briefings, made some plans, concrete plans, what we were going to do. So we basically made a plan that we were going to provide um, meals and food and like grocery, everything to about 5,000 families. So with that plan, I went back to Afghanistan. And what month are we in now? Um, it's uh, December. So I went back the second time in December, uh, December 9th, and everything is well. We are giving, you know, aid to everybody. We are giving food. We are on the street everywhere. We are giving them like groceries and um And you feel comfortable doing this. Do, do you once again have like some security from the Taliban? Yeah, yeah I have bodyguards. I have everything. Okay. Everything is going well. So the first time I spent four days, this time I'm actually there for nine days um december 18 uh, so i've been there for almost nine days now so day nine is when i have my flight back to the u.s and that morning the taliban from the directorate of intelligence which is sort of an entity within the government that operates outside the government uh what does that mean they don't they're not answerable to the like the general Taliban hierarchy. They have sort of their own uh, hierarchy and they mostly collect intelligence. It's if you put CIA and FBI together hmm. uh, into one entity, that's basically who they are. And they come and they're like, oh, we have some reports about you and we just want to ask you some questions. They're like, okay, no problem. Um, and then we're like, they're like, oh, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Where are you from? All the just basic questions. I answer all of them. And they're like, oh, checks out. You're fine. We don't have anything against you. Uh, but just to make everything official, you just have to come back to the headquarters with us and, you know, give a statement, sign it, and then you'll be good to go. Um, and What's your mind doing right now? Are you, um, are you suspicious? A little bit, but... I we we've had like problems like that before and it we had just kind of resolved it um by you know just talking through with it talking through them um so I'm not really like that suspicious about it so um we actually go to the headquarters in our own vehicles 
and I have the Taliban headquarters, the Taliban bodyguards with me. So it's four vehicles. The front vehicle is the intelligence guys. And when we get to the headquarters, there is an arm that goes up and the first vehicle from the director of intelligence goes through. The second vehicle is um, about five British citizens that were also staying at the same hotel. So that goes through. Third vehicle, it's me. And then the fourth vehicle is the bodyguards. Who did, did you have any of your people with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I was in that the vehicle that had some people with me. It's from your team. Yeah. Uh, so my brother is also with me in that vehicle. So as soon as the third vehicle that we are in, it passes through the arm, they put the arm down. They don't let the guards in. And then the guards like kind of get into a little... Um, I've seen this movie scene before. Yeah, yeah, they, movies. yeah, they get into a little argument with them and they're like, yeah, you can't go in. This is directed of intelligence. No one is allowed to go in. <laughs> and the Taliban... Because, again, the Taliban organization is not a monolith. There's like everybody has sort of their own rules and sort of their own agendas, rules, and they abide by different rules. What is... It, actually, as a little aside, though, what is... If you could explain that structure, mm-hmm. like, because me and everyone else just throws the word Taliban on it. I'm going to continue to do that, I'm sure. But, like, is there a way to relate their their power structure to, like, any sort of traditional government? Like, this guy kind of reports to that guy, and this department, like you said, what was it, the Office of Directorate? Directorate of General Intelligence. Right, so you said they're kind of like an entity that doesn't really have to report to anyone, but they're a part of the Taliban. Like, how how does all this, how does it from, like, their leader to their Senate, if there even is something like that, down to intelligence, like, how do they report to each other? How does it work? So there is the supreme leader. There is the supreme leader... That's above everybody. And he is basically in charge of above everybody and everybody answers to him. But then above him are ministers. Minister of Interior, Minister of Defense, Minister of... Below him is the Minister of Interior, Minister of Defense, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister... Like all the ministry level people, Minister of Civil Aviation and all that. Um, In between the, uh, the Supreme Leader and the ministers there is three people three key people that are also um on the hierarchy that are are above the ministers so the director of general intelligence does not belong to a ministry they answer directly to the top they're not answer they don't answer to any of the guys that are um in that hierarchy so it's a small organization, but they are only um, responsible for answering to the supreme leader. So we go to the headquarters, and then the that um, we sat there all day. They didn't answer any of our questions, and just basically had us sit there when dark. When it gets dark, they take us from that room, put us, uh, cover our faces, and put us in vehicles and sort of drive us from there to another place. And then once we get to this other place, they basically like start processing us like prisoners. 
So you know we got yeah. a big problem. Yeah. Once they put some on your head, you're like, yeah. oh, this, this yeah. is... But then at that point, like, our bodyguards were not allowed to come inside. And these guys have, like, about a dozen armed guys that are just... The guys who actually brought us, they left. And then now they have just random armed guys that are telling us to do. And when we ask them questions, they're like, oh, we have no idea. We don't know. Because um, of the office's power, they could pretty much tell your guys to fuck off. Yeah. And no repercussions for yeah. that is what you're saying. Okay. So um, the armed guys are basically like hurting us and taking us to this uh, prison, basically. Uh, they take all our stuff, process us, and basically take us to this basement that's these basement cells that is um, eight feet by eight feet. And then we got there. And then for the next three and a half months, that's where we we spent the next three and a half months in those basements. In a little cell like that. Yeah. Um, and for the first 17 days, we were not able to speak to anyone outside. Are they, I mean, did they feed you? Like, Yeah, I mean, they fed us where, you know, rice and beans twice a day. Uh nothing really special um they fed us that and then we remained there for three and a half months um but when did they start questioning you like right away or day five they just put us without answering any questions for about five days so they just stick you in there yeah they're not no one's saying Single anything cells, to yeah. you you don't know what's mm -hmm. going on yeah. none of the guards are talking to you mm -hmm. so Day five, the guy who initially came to our hotel comes back and he starts asking us questions and we once again tell all of that. And he once again is like, oh, yeah, all of this checks out. You guys are actually, haven't you guys haven't done anything wrong. It's those other five Brits that were in the same hotel. We just brought you guys as well on suspicion. We were, those were the guys we were looking for. I thought they let them through because they didn't put the arm down. Uh, they let them through into the to the director and to the headquarters. Oh, right. So, um, they're like, we're looking for the. We are interested in the Brits. You guys are just here for bad luck. What did do? Do you know if they ever what they ever did with those guys? They were in the same prison with us. Oh, there. you saw them. Yeah, they were. Oh. They were. We were in the same place. We're all in the same place. And what was their story? What were they doing there? Uh, you know, I don't know what Brits do, what, why they do it. And it's just like, <laughs> they're weird people. All like, British people are weird. They're so fucking weird, man. It's we got like, a lot of listeners out there going, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were doing some shady shit out there in Afghanistan. And they had their hands in so many fucking things. And they had caught like stuff with them and just were not kosher mm. so we are just like fuck so just because we were in that hotel we are also um subjected to this did you actually think that was why no because later we found out that some people had gone to the director of intelligence and basically some people who uh had asked for money and we didn't we hadn't paid them because we didn't want to pay anyone bribes and then they had gone and just basically um, spread false rumors and given them um, 
fake stories about us. That do you know what kinds of things they were saying? Uh, basically, that we worked for the intelligence, U.S. intelligence agencies, and we were there to overthrow the Taliban government. We mm. were working against them, and we were smuggling, and we were like doing all kinds of the regular shit. dollar menu of reasons. Yeah, right. yeah. So, and, and but but you know, three and a half months we spent in that basement, and day seventeen was the first time we were actually able to call home, and our families didn't know if we were alive or dead. They so, they let you call home. They didn't. We smuggled the phone by recruiting one of the guards. Hold on a minute. Hold yeah. On. All right. All right. But before we get to that, back up a second. So the first five days, they don't say anything to you. They don't question you or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You had said they're eight by eight cells, but that all these different prisoners, the British guys, you, and it, was it you and your brother and someone else, or was it just you and your brother? Uh, so... Initially, it was just me. Then the, he was my brother was in a different cell. But after the inter, the first interrogation, we were put back. To, we were put together. Okay, so when you guys were all in separate cells at the beginning, though, are these cells like closed door, or can you talk closed to each door. other? Okay, so there's Completely no talking to each door. other. You're just no. completely sitting in yeah. a room. How do you? I've never done that before. How do you go like yeah. five days alone in a room with nothing? It's what the hard. fuck do you do? It's hard. You think really? Think about all the decisions. <laughs> that you've made until that point in your life. But also, like I told you, like my life is not just, it's not like somebody who's never been in a difficult situation or don't know how to deal with situations like that. Were you doing anything to calm your mind? Like trying to imagine yourself somewhere else? Like, um, yeah. The vacations I'm going to go on when I come back to the U.S. <laughs> You're still thinking about getting out. Good for you. Yeah. yeah I don't know if like, I'd be thinking that right there. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I always thought about is like when I get back, I'm going to go on like on a road trip. Um, well, you did that. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So, so five days like that. Uh -huh. Let's start with the questioning though before we get to the smuggle on the phone thing. The questioning was not that like serious. It's just, it's, it's actually a fucking joke. Um just so simple like i was like you guys why are we even here like it was just just felt like a fucking joke now do they do like good cop bad cop yeah yes. oh they do yeah even at the taliban yeah it, it's like one of the guys like oh yeah if you just tell us everything you know you know we will help you and and then you know, some dude comes like, in like tell us fucking everything <laughs> yeah yeah and um just because we were uh americans and you know foreigners they treated us better than everyone else so mm. they didn't really like it was all a fucking show um just trying to show to their like they knew that when i get out i was, I was gonna come back and be like talk about them so they weren't like showing me their real faces either they were like they they were basically showing me the most orchestrated best kind of behavior face and best practice that's could you there. see their could you physically see their faces though too or were yeah. they wearing shit yeah, no, okay. I can. Uh, right. yeah. So you know who they are at least. Yeah. But like when they're asking you these questions, you already are in contact with the whole, with like the leadership of the Taliban. They know the reason why you're there, which is yeah. not why they're under suspicion holding you right now. Yeah. But are you just pretty much just reiterating that? Like, yes, I'm here. I already talked with you guys. This is what I'm doing. And they're just like, yeah. I don't believe you. Yeah. And even the leadership was because, like I said before, they don't, they're not listening to the leadership because all the leadership is vouching for me. But they're not, they, they, they don't, don't fall within that hierarchy. So they don't have to listen to them. And every time they those people say something, they're like, we have to do our thorough investigation. 
we have to do a thorough investigation and make sure that they're not up to anything that is uh, against us or the government or trying to do something shady here. How long would the interrogations last? Um, Like an hour. It was only twice. They interrogated us twice. It was one hour. And basically, like, they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing you guys have done wrong. It's just you're in a wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, That was basically their whole, like, narrative. So from day 5 to 17, it's like two times. They yeah. question you for an hour. The rest of it, you're in a cell. But at some point, your brother also joins yeah. you in that cell. Yeah. So now you're living with your brother in an 8 by 8 cell. Yeah, that was the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's the most difficult part. I I did not enjoy that. It's just not pleasant. You didn't like being that close quartered. Yeah, no, but also like it's because this is my mission. I started this. Mm. I've been doing this. He's like, the fuck did you got me? <laughs> <laughs> You're getting the guilt trip 24-7. Yeah. And, oh and I mean, this guy is like in his 40s and like probably like. He's like 15, 20 years older than me. And he's just, he's just like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> I'm too yeah. old for this shit. And isn't really in the best shape or health to be there. Mm. So, it, Do they have a toilet in there for you guys, by the way? No. So they took us out to the toilet like three times a day. Holy shit. Yeah. I've gone so you to have the bathroom to hold it. twice since this podcast started. Yeah. So you have to hold it. And that sucks. Yeah. We, we had bottles in the room. All right, well, be, you got some. Yeah. Uh, but it's going and, you know, that's the worst part is just being with my brother in there. Uh, and day 17, we recruit one of the guards, call home, tell them we're good and where we are. Now, how does that happen? So you said these are closed door cells. Mm-hmm. So you can't just, like, hang your hand on... It's not open bars where you can hang your hands on the bar and say, so you watched the game last night? Like, how <laughs> how do you develop a relationship with the guard? Oh, when they're taking us to the bathroom. That's not long. Yeah. We're talking, like, probably three-minute spurts here. Yeah. But in between streams. Exactly. You have to use it to your, your... You have to be good. Okay, so I'm a Taliban guard. We're walking yeah. out to the fucking Pichadol right now. Yeah. What are you saying to me? I mean, it, it was it was something the guard needed that we had and the guard could do something for us. So it was just like, it was more of a transaction than actually like, what did, what did he need? Uh, he, he needed to get married. Did have money to get married. So we, 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 uh, we sponsored his marriage. We like the U S of a government sponsored. His marriage. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I'd be happy to do that to get you yeah, out yeah, of there, but yeah. you know, no, I I just had my team. I I, I had I had directed my team to um, basically like arrange his wedding, uh, and and pay for it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm responsible for getting uh, uh, a Talib guy married. Was she? Uh, was it voluntary or involuntary on her end? Oh, none of it is voluntary. I was gonna it's say, just like, you get married to Talib and you lost one on the battlefield there, yeah. huh? <laughs> So uh, that happens, and then, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I could write a fucking book about that, and most people would. So you, but... he gives you the phone, though, mm-hmm. and you, 
is it does he like say you get one call or do you have like some unlimited time to do some damage here uh no i mean i get just a barely call and i i i i don't ask him to give me his phone i ask him i was like well i could give you the address of my team and you could go and tell them that you know i told you i told you to tell them that to pay for your wedding but they won't believe you so if i just call them and tell them this you know i'm just gonna call them and tell them to to arrange your wedding so, and then you also speak in code and tell them I'm safe or yeah. I'm I'm alive. But well, no, I tell them. Fucked. I tell my I tell my uh, team. I was like, hey, when he comes, you know, take care of him and also give him a phone because I didn't want to talk on his phone. Oh, I was like, give him a phone. So he brings us a phone. So you had not do you have like a charger charging station too, or is he taking um, care of that? So he would come every night, give us the phone, and then we would use the phone, and in the morning we'd give it back. And no one caught this. No, they're not coming in there and like patting you down. We we didn't keep it with us. The guard was keeping the phone. But at night he's not. Yeah, but at night everybody's sleeping. They don't have like a night shift over there. No. So it's like the Epstein treatment. They yeah. just like fall asleep. Yeah, they just like that. That was actually very surprising that everybody would just like the whole place would become dead quiet and everybody would go to sleep. Taliban work ethic. I don't know yeah. these days. It's Not like... as good. <laughs> Not as good as it was. So you, yeah. so you're every night. Are you like trying to run the business and from the cell now too, or are you <laughs> trying, trying to, to work on like, your own freedom? It's, it's kind of funny. The first time I, I was every time I was calling my girlfriend, uh, I called my girlfriend. I was like, oh, so how is everything going on he's like <laughs> he's like safi everybody's busy getting you out no one is doing the work oh my god so yeah and i mean there's there's a lot that happened in that basement um you know i continue to talk to my girlfriend give them uh we continue to devise ways of figuring out how to get me out and then you know president biden got involved and president biden like directed his um the special envoy to you know negotiate with the taliban my family went to afghanistan my dad my mom my sister my my sister-in-law and my brother they all went to afghanistan to basically directly did, negotiate with the taliban did the u.s government provide them like the ability to go there under no. protection no they just went there themselves they just went them, themselves because you know they took a flight to Afghanistan. They took a flight to Afghanistan. It was like, we're going to go and fucking deal with the Taliban face-to-face -face right there. Now, at any point, but while all this is going on, does the interrogation turn to something else where they get physical or anything like that? No. You're just in I the mean, cell. I was, I was tortured once, but that was because I got into a fight with them. Well, what the fuck happened there? <laughs> um, I... It was about, I think, day... It was... It, oh, I went on a hunger strike. That's what happened. When did you so, go on a hunger strike? How uh, many days in? So about 30-some day in, um, close to f almost 40 days, day 40, I went on a hunger strike. Um, but I don't actually exactly remember because we were not counting days. <laughs> uh, but it was um, um, late 30s and, you know, maybe day 40. Started hunger strike day eight. Uh, they came down and they were like, you're going to break your hunger strike. And I was like, no, I'm not. And then um, 
Wait, I thought you said you started at day... I might have lost you there. I thought you Sorry. said you started day 30, and then you just said day 8. So I started day 8. I was on my hunger strike. I hunger... Hunger strike day 8. Day 8 of hunger strike. I was oh, there. oh the, the 8th day of it. Got it, got it, got yeah, it. Yeah, 8th day of a hunger strike. So you didn't eat food for 8 days. Yeah. And then day 8, they are like, you're going to eat. And I was like, no, I'm not. They're not going to know you're going to eat. I was like, no, I'm now, not. Now, how was that experience? Like, like, I mean, I'm sure it sucked, but it, it's had you ever done anything, challenge your body in any way without No, sustenance? not like that. Not like that. Um, I had not. Uh, what made you make, I mean, why did you think that was going to work, too? I mean, it was one to pressure the Taliban. I was like, why am I here? If I haven't done anything wrong, get me the fuck out of here. If I have done something wrong, tell me what I've done wrong. And they couldn't tell me that. And when I went on hunger strike, some of their most senior leadership in that department came and were like, you need to eat and you'll be released very soon. You're going to go home. You can't be hunger striking. Because they were also afraid that if anything happened to me, you know, um, I was important to the U.S. government. Now, hunger strike, does that include all... Does that include drinking water, too? Yeah, I was drinking water. You were drinking water. For that one. Okay. For that one. For that one. There were multiple. Huh? Yeah. So what What, what do you... Eighth day into a hunger strike, they they obviously made you eat. Yeah. Uh, well, they didn't make me eat. Um, so that day about, like, when I said I'm not going to eat, about they, about 13 of them came down and they were holding me down and they, like, beat me up. And I was still not eating. They're beating you up and you're eight days into a hunger strike. Yeah. Your body's got to be shot. Yeah, it's... Are you delusional? No. No. Eight days. Yeah. You were functional. Uh, yeah, I was good. So... You were, I was good. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Eight days, fuck it. I'll do 20. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, it, it was... And then um, the, the next day after the, the beating, the they come back and the senior, like, the chief of the the place comes back, comes down to us and they like sit down with us and it's like anything you guys want, we'll give you anything you guys want. Uh, any kind of food you want to eat, um, you want to go upstairs and just walk around, uh, stretch your feet, go in the sun. We hadn't seen the sun for like 70 days. Um, you want to go see the sun, you want to like anything you want to do, uh, just break your hunger strike. And this is actually when uh, they had told my family as well, and that's why my family actually came to Afghanistan because they are like, if he stop, if he continues to not eat, he's gonna die. So that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. So they also came in. My dad also uh, got on the phone with me. They're like, "We're here. We're gonna get you out. Start All eating. You start eating." So, but they beat the shit out of you before yeah. this. Yeah, because and, and they didn't. They didn't break me. They were like, "This guy's not gonna break." So then they, Savage. yeah, then they're like, we'll give you everything. So then I was like, I made a list. I was like, I want lamb. <laughs> I want like, I had a list, like a two page long list and I gave them and they, they brought everything. They brought all of it. They brought all of it. Uh, it was like fruits and like sweets and cake and like everything I could think of, everything I wanted to eat. And I wrote that. And since so you I got had a room service to this yeah, cell. Yeah. 
And I, since I hadn't eaten like for eight days, I just wanted to everything. <laughs> so they, they brought all that food. And um, then, you know, I... It started getting better after that. Like we could ask for books, we could ask for food, we could go out. You know, there was a room upstairs for the guards where they all slept. There was a TV there, so we would go and sit there and watch with TV. With the guards, just chilling. Just chilling with the guards. This is bizarre. Yeah. Um, because we broke them. We broke the Taliban, basically. Like, they were like, we just need to make sure that these fuckers stay alive until mm. the they are out of here. Because if anything happens... Because one of their most, like, the, the top supreme leader basically called them and was like, if anything happens to these guys... You guys are <laughs> <laughs> so they really treated us like you know royalty after that. But in the so you had spoken to your parents who told you to eat, yeah, uh, and then they came and to that the they prison. were there, they came, and then they were and then they came and saw you, yeah, they so came let and you saw. down there to see you, yeah, they came and saw us. And every time, like, things would they wouldn't listen to us and wouldn't give us something, and just like, I'm not gonna eat. Hmm. It's just I would just stop eating, and then I would I wouldn't eat like one or two meals, and then they would just because when they came they were like oh no they can't come in here they can't see you and I was like I'm not eating, so I didn't <laughs> eat for like two meals, and then the next day they were there. Wow. Um, and then my dad went to the director and basically sat down with him and was like, hey, you're holding my sons, and basically told him who my dad was. My dad is well-respected in the community. He's an elder of the tribe, and he has a large following uh, in the community. So and, he went in there and made demands? Yeah. And he's like, you're going to let my children go. And he's like, I will let them go as, as long as a senior American official comes to take them. Uh, like, we'll do a handover to a senior American official. In exchange for anything? No. Nothing. So your dad, yeah, your mom and dad, anyone else? My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law. Okay. They all get on a plane. Mm -hmm. They fly on their own accord to yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. They walk into the office of the directorate. Mm -hmm. They get to visit with you sometimes. Yeah. And then one day your dad walks in there, sits down at a desk like this and says, listen, buddy, here's yeah. how this is going to go. Yeah. And that's how it goes? Yeah. You but, really did have leverage. Holy yeah. shit. So, and, and I mean, my dad basically like explained everything to him is who my dad was. And my dad has like following of hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So who is your dad? It, we belong to the largest tribe in Afghanistan. And at one point my dad was single-handedly like, you know, kicking the Russians ass. Really? Um, yeah. So all of that history was something that came in, in handy. You gotta um, do a podcast with your dad. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a legend. That's amazing. Um, um so that is in place. And then th we we come back and tell the US government that that hey, this is the deal. And they're like, Oh, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> no, like, you're not allowed out? No, no. They're like, Oh no, that that's that's not how hostage like deals work. And it's like 
they're not gonna let him go just because we make a visit it's oh, like oh they just didn't believe it they just didn't believe it because mm, that's fair you know if you in retrospect if you look at it you know if you look at every hostage situation every hostage that we have ever gotten out from anywhere we have released somebody significant in exchange or given them like a significant amount of money we yeah. gave like so when Obama got like those hostages out of Iran he gave like over a billion dollars <laughs> So it's Drop just... Drop in the bucket. Yeah, exactly. And then when we had uh, Bo Bergdahl... I was going to say, Bo Bergdahl was yeah. Taliban, right? So when They we, gave him Taliban guys. Yeah, they gave him five five of the top top Taliban back. The, they, they call him the, the five, which is the top <laughs> five Taliban in Afghanistan right now. So that that's what Bo Bergdahl was released for. So when we told the State Department that, hey, this is how it's... They, were, they, they wouldn't believe it because it just... Because they were like, oh, they have an American citizen. They can ask for so much for it. Why would they just want to visit from an American official and release them? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's that's not how that works. And then my girlfriend like reached to the senior leadership in um, State Department, and she got a meeting with um, Wendy Sherman, uh, Assistant Secretary of State. Okay. So they have about they have a forty five minute call. And when is this now? January. This February? is about five days before I got up. It's um, March. Uh, yeah, Late it's March twenty fourth, March twenty fifth. Uh, okay. um, now, while this is all going on, by the way, because I don't remember this, I don't remember your story. Yeah, being in the media, mm-hmm. was this kept quiet? Absolutely. That's it was on on purpose because how did that work? Uh, so we, we, we wanted to keep it quiet and we wanted to resolve it without making it public because once it becomes public, it becomes much more difficult to actually negotiate because then more Taliban are going to get involved. They're like, oh no, we're just not going to just release him. We're going to ask for like X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So we kept it quiet. Uh, and they kept it quiet. Yeah. They kept it quiet as well. Why were they... Were they motivated to keep it quiet for those same reasons of like, you know, we're trying to act like we could have connections with the West, that type of deal? Yeah. Okay. And I mean, the reason they wanted uh, senior American officials to visit is because they wanted to the the optics of it. Oh, right. That somebody from America came and visited and it meant a lot to them. Um, So Wendy Sherman gets on the phone call with them. It's a 45 minute call. And like Wendy Sherman is making arguments after arguments after arguments about like how it's a bad idea that it's not a deal. And my girlfriend is like, no, no, it's a deal. Like you guys need to go. And so my girlfriend is prepared. Was Wendy worried that they were going to send someone and then the Taliban was going to be like, look at these idiots. They send someone and we're not going to even give them up. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Wendy Sherman is like making all these arguments, but, but my girlfriend is like, she is she's no small deal she's like um she is a stanford and harvard graduate and mm. is a, is one of the most you know a successful broadway director and um she's just a force to reckon with and so she goes to this whole scenario with Wendy Sherman, but at the end, Wendy Sherman is basically like, "I will take and I will take all of your, you know, 
what we talked about. I'll take it back to the president. I'll talk to the president and I'll see what the president decides. But you guys, I'm what you guys are asking for us to, even if there's no deal, you want us to um, send an envoy to Afghanistan. My office is like, yeah, absolutely. We want you to send somebody to Afghanistan. And they're like, okay. And my girlfriend also says that if my girlfriend actually gives them a deadline, it's like, <laughs> she gives the president a deadline. Yeah. It's like, if you don't release, if you don't send somebody by this date, we will release, we will have a press release. And she wrote a skating press release and send it to Wendy Sherman's inbox. It's like, this is what we're going to release. And the press release was that because of optics, President Biden lets an American citizen die in Taliban prison. So that was the uh, title of the press release. Oh, my God. Um, of course, that never got released because... Oh, it did now. Yeah. So... <laughs> um, uh, she went back to the president and they talked and the president was like, he sent the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the president sent the plane with uh, senior American officials on it. And Who was on it? I can't talk you about You can't it. say that. Okay, yeah. that's fair. But some serious people. Yeah. Yeah. So they come and talk to the Taliban and then I get back on that plane and I fly out to Doha, Qatar. Were you in your cell while they were talking with the with the Taliban, or were you a yeah. part of that conversation? Well, no, because the Taliban, uh, the officials, American officials, didn't come to the prison. They went to the presidential palace to meet with the senior Taliban leadership. Oh, the place they were taking like the Instagram videos at when they took over. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So yeah, that I came back April first of all days. Now you come back. Yeah. First of all, you just did a lot to your body in that ordeal. Yeah. With hunger strikes. I mean, how are you looking at this point? Better than I've ever looked. <laughs> <laughs> a little weight loss in there? Um, well, you know, I, I had uh, my choice of whatever I wanted to eat that well, last, like... Yeah, yeah. Um, but the hunger strike was not only for to put pressure on Taliban, but also to put pressure on the U.S. government. Because we were... They were telling the U.S. government, my family was telling the U.S. government that I was on a hunger strike. Do you, looking back on it, do you look at this as the U.S. government secured your release or your parents secured your release? My parents, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, they just sent a plane, which they do for everybody. So, (laughs) yeah. And then I came and I'm here now. Well, I I listened to your TED talk right after I connected with you. Yeah. A few weeks ago. And you, I, I think at the beginning, you said everyone can find this on YouTube. It's I'll put the link down in the description. It's about 10, 11 minutes. It's great, by the way. But at the beginning, you said, I think it was 10 days ago, I was sitting in a cell in Afghanistan. Yeah. And now you're already giving a TED Talk. Yeah. So you get on the <clears throat> ground back in America on home soil, and you're immediately already going to work. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're back in work. We're back fully doing everything we were doing. We have permission from the highest ranking Taliban and we are able to do everything in country. Um, We're doing all of the work that we were doing. We are doing so much more and no one can say anything because one thing that came from this whole ordeal is Taliban looked at everything we were doing 
And they basically decided that we are above board and we can do all of those things. They're cool with this. They're cool with it. And basically because they, at the end, uh, at the end, basically they realized that everything that the suspicions that they had, they were all false and they felt bad. And now they are basically coming back around. They're like, you guys are, we're registered NGO in Afghanistan. We don't pay taxes. Uh, and we can do all operations in Afghanistan, humanitarian evacuations, everything. It is so bizarre to me, though. Like, I'm just picturing this in my head, and I'm sure people at home are doing the same thing. It's bizarre to me that, like, you are doing this covert mission, right, mm-hmm. where you are you are rescuing people out through all these cars and everything yeah. and getting them from point A to safe house to safe house, all on their soil. Mm-hmm. You are telling them that you're doing it. Yeah. And yet you still have to do it that way covertly. And if you get caught, some of their people, who are them, may kill you. Yeah. And now after 105 days being held hostage by them and let back out, you're right back on business. Yeah. This is a what, like psychologically, this... That's what you got to do. I mean, you can't just... I I mean, it's... I I don't want to, like... It's not that it doesn't... Hasn't affected me every time I close my eyes. It's like, even, even last night, I... Every time I fall asleep, it's like my dreams and my, like, it's always, um, sometimes I dream about, like, people just torturing me or sometimes I am back in that prison. Sometimes, um, you know, I'm around Taliban who are trying to arrest me or trying to, like, take me to prison or, like, I have those nightmares and those demons. Um, It doesn't affect me in my day-to-day life, but my sleep is not great. Um, I'll bet. Yeah. So even last night, like I would, I slept for like probably two, three hours and every like 10, 15 minutes I would wake up like shaking. Um, but you know, that's, that's just life. Um, from being a refugee to coming to the U S to being in the U S military, to being with one of the most elite special operations unit to, uh, doing this work, to being in Taliban prison, to all of that. It's, it's just part of life. And you know, it it happens and you just have to roll with the punches and um, you're going to fall. You have to get up and you just have to be resilient. Um, you know, if the first uh, time I fell and I stayed down there, I'd be, I wouldn't be here today. I would be in a much worse place. And um, every time you fall and you get up, you're going to end up in a better place. So it's just, the resilience that I have is from so much of the experience I've had in my life. And, but it's, it's also, you must have people who are loyal to you. Mm. It's, you must have a team, you must build your tribe. Uh, You must build those people around you who are going to go to bat, who are going to, who are going to be willing to die for you uh, if the time comes and, you 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 must be ready to do that in return for them because it's not a one-way street that's right so that's what it takes to have those people around you have those commitments and continue to uh do all the work despite all of the challenges well you have an unbelievable perspective to say the least and what really comes across especially when you're telling the stories is how fearless you seem to be and how you can even find 
like I've laughed a few times today when you're talking about some of these serious moments, yeah. and that's because of something you said. You mm -hmm. know, you you kind of have this dry, like okay, roll with the punches. Yeah. But you know, it's cool to hear you say though yeah. that you're still underneath it a human being. You know, you still yeah. people. I I don't think you could ever go through any of the shit you've gone through to say nothing of this latest experience and not have some sort of, you know, trigger to that. Some sort of deep-rooted, you know, everyone has their fear of like the what if yeah. with something. And, and you know, I, I think your threshold for the what if just happens to be a lot higher yeah, than the I, average person. I mean, being courageous is not not being afraid of things. Uh, courageous is not that you're not afraid of anything Courageous is you are, you know, courageous is when you are afraid, but despite that fear, you still do what is right. You are scared, mm -hmm. but you're going to do it anyway because you believe in it. And that's your, um, that's, that's what you think is the right thing to do. And, and that's where it comes. That's the difference between uh, being fearless and being courageous. You know, some people are fearless. They jump from like fucking buildings and go fight with a fucking lion or do shit like that. Um, that's because, you know, they may not have fear of certain things, but being courageous is to do the right thing despite knowing the consequences, despite knowing, despite being scared. Like it's, even me going to the Taliban and talking to the Taliban, sitting with them, it didn't mean that I wasn't scared. It didn't mean mm -hmm. that I didn't have fear. It didn't mean that, you know, I was always ready to be detained, be killed, or be like, you know, done worse things to me. But at the same time, you know, what the end goal was, what that meant for me was worth it. That's a really powerful way to put it, man. I mean, it's... And then you look at the actions you've taken in your life, you know, from like we talked about you being at a young age and having to understand realities that the average person never has mm -hmm. to understand yeah. and adapting that to kind of become as a kid, you described it as a chameleon. I would describe it even go a step further and say you essentially always had to be some level of spy, yeah. right? And so now you're channeling that, putting your life on hold, by the way, you know, putting medical school on hold to pay it back forward to not just like your fellow countrymen over there, yeah. but also to, you know, the people here who care about a lot of them and the yeah. people who you've served with and, and kind of continuing the mission that you did. It, it's just so cool to me that, that all the different tentacles of, of your life that are tying together in this project is amazing. But it's even more amazing that after this whole ordeal, you're operating business as usual, getting people out. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way. I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, but speaking of that, like where, where, where do things stand? I, I know we had we had highlighted earlier. I had mentioned the conversation I had with you before the podcast about how there's estimated to be 160,000 people yeah. left behind now. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that you're you're in detention, if you want to call it that, yeah. from. December through April, 21 to 22. Yeah. And a little something happens in the middle of that in February. <laughs> did, did you find out about the Ukraine invasion in while you were in there, or was that afterwards? Uh, so actually, the Ukraine invasion was sort of a blessing in disguise for us as well. Is So, so that day, 
I was supposed to receive an award uh, for, uh, I was chosen to be the Washingtonian of the year um, uh, for, for 2021. And I was supposed to receive the award that day and I was supposed to give a speech there and attend in person. But you were still in the cell. But I was still in the cell. Um, So what my family and loved ones on this side had decided that they were going to go public with uh, my detention that day. But the reason they didn't go public is because all of the news, basically everything was uh, occupied by the Ukraine news. So they were like, even if we go public, it's not going to, it's not going to catch any kind of news. So I think that was sort of a blessing in disguise. But at the same time, you know, I didn't find out for a while. But then again, once we got access to that, you know, the the guard room, we were going there and watching news and stuff. So we, we kind of found out. Even if it was some sort of a, a tailwind to the desperation that is required to help people in need in war zones yeah is there not some sort of i hate to say this but like some sort of negative shift though for you as well in the sense that once ukraine happened all the focus went there Mm -hmm. afghanistan i'm just speaking from broad terms of like american media afghanistan became old news and you know the primary focus became the ukrainian people and getting asylum for them so from a you know because you guys are working with the state department and everything and getting resources like have you seen downstream negative effects because of that yeah i mean absolutely we we do see that afghanistan's been put on the back burner and um there is such a lack of uh resources for afghanistan while ukraine is like at the top of every list um that's incredibly frustrating for us. And we have to, um, once again, compete for resources and try to do the best we can. Um, But that's not going to stop us. We'll continue to work. And there's a lot of things that are in the pipeline coming through, which, you know, it's hard to speak about future things or current operations because uh, for, you know, OPSEC and security and all of that. But, uh, we continue to, you know, roll with the punches. Uh, I mean, initially when we I got out, nothing was happening, but now we're sort of getting back a little bit on the, um, the 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 bandwagon of like trying to at least do the bare minimum that we possibly can. But of course, it's it's no secret that Ukraine really pushed the Afghanistan need and uh, work to the back burner. And a lot of the people who were actually doing those, this work with us uh, before, they all had moved on to work on Ukraine. Mm. That's, I mean, the world changes very quickly. Narratives change very quick. And I, it's it's sad to me that humanity can get lost in the middle of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's our world. We can... We have to keep uh, keep doing the best we can and hope for the best. Can't stop because there's it's not an option. And so, what the name of your organization is Human First Coalition. Human First right? Coalition. People can find that online and on Instagram at Human First Coalition, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, our website is humanfirstcoalition.org. And you can find all information on there. And you guys are accepting donations there as well? Yes. 
Okay. And so right now, as far as like mission status on the ground, are you are you doing decent volume getting people out of there on a daily basis or what is the how does it look right now? It's very low. Uh not we don't have a good volume, but like I said, there's things in the pipeline that will make that happen and um uh the number one need right now is humanitarian aid because people are dying just because of hunger. Crazy. Man. Um so yeah, there's things in pipeline that will make sure that uh and, and we're not going to stop. We're going to continue like there's people, there's people in the government that would want us to forget about this and just kind of throw it out the window and not care. But we're not going to stop. We're going to keep caring and we're going to keep being a uh, an annoyance to them and continue to um, remind them that Afghanistan is still relevant and it's there's people still left behind that needs to be uh, that needs to find their way to safety. Well, I think that's a good spot to stop it, man. I got a lot of other questions and we'll be here for a long time if we do that. But yeah. I I do love how in depth you went with not just your life but also the history of Afghanistan and and the importance of it and and also like that whole region over there. I, I just there's such good education in this today. But the work you do is absolutely incredible. Once again, people can go to Human First Coalition on Instagram. Has all the links there and everything to donate. And I'm I'm really glad you're here to tell us your story and still with us and still working your ass off. It's an amazing thing, bro. Thank I, you for I admire it me. a lot. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and. Uh, really happy to be here. All right. We'll do it again sometime, all right? Thank you. All right. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace. Peace.